Okay, here we go. Five, four, three, two. Yes, and we're live. Hello, hey. Lindsay. What's happening? <laughs> Not much. Thanks Pleasure for having me. Pleasure to meet me here. you. Yeah, yeah. Good to meet you. I'm I'm the girl who tags you in all the disgusting medical history <laughs> photos, and well, I'm really looking forward to grossing out your audience. Today. I, I'm looking forward to you, to you doing that as well. You have uh, fascinated me <laughs> with your uh, Twitter page, and you like. Uh, first of all. How you are a doctor, right? Well, I'm a PhD. I can't save anybody's life. Okay. I could perform, you know, Victorian surgery amputation or something. I think anybody can, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that probably. a real one? That's no. Saw? This is this is a prop. Oh. Um, so this is <laughs> this was a was a real fun thing to get through uh, customs uh, when I was coming in from Britain. It's uh, a Victorian amputation saw. It's called the Clockwork Saw. And um, for people who are just listening, it's it's a circular saw, and there would have been a crank that you wound it with, and then you'd release it, and it would spin sort of automatically. Oh, God. Yeah, and the idea was that it would make it faster. But the reason why I love this saw so much is that it was a massive failure. And um, I don't think we talk about failure enough in science and medicine. You know, all the things that work, there's a lot of things that don't work. And so this guy who invented this saw, when he tried it out, it was spinning so fast that he took off his assistant fingers. Oh, Jesus so it was Christ. A bit of an oops. Um, it never got out of prototype phase, so I had to recreate it for my, my YouTube channel. <laughs> now, when you, in those old days when they didn't have antibiotics and antiseptic and right yeah when they saw someone's leg off or something like that, how many times did those people live? <laughs> well, you could pull through the operation. That was one part of it. But then, of course, you could die of post-operative infection. Yeah. So my book, uh, The Butchering Art, really focuses on this one guy named Joseph Lister who applies germ theory and develops antisepsis, so germ-fighting techniques. Right. And most people don't know who he is, but they know the product Listerine. Mm -hmm. So Listerine was named after him. But oh. uh, I, I always uh, tell people that. So basically uh, – Lister was a British surgeon, and he came to America in 1876 to convince the medical community of germs. And there was a guy in the audience, and he decided to create this product, Listerine. But it wasn't even a mouthwash in the 19th century. It was used to treat gonorrhea. Whoa. <laughs> so, but also, I don't endorse that. Don't, don't throw a little <laughs> Listerine yeah, on it. Yeah, go to a doctor, man. Yeah, I could just see all the comments already on the YouTube. You know, she told me to throw a Listerine on it. No, I, I, I don't endorse that. And I'm sure the Listerine company is not too pleased I'm talking about that either. So Listerine now just is for breath, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, That's all it does. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an antiseptic mouthwash. And is so, it even any good for you? Like, is it good to kill all that stuff inside your mouth? Like, I, I'm not a real doctor. <laughs> right, but you're a medical historian. I'm a medical historian. I would yeah. say that Dennis would say that, that Listerine's still a good product. Do you Kills use it, Jamie? Bacteria. Yeah. yeah. All right. Some form of it, something like that. I just use something, I don't know if it's crest Some or mouthwash. Well, yeah. you got to switch to Listerine now, yeah, in, now in honor do. of, of and, Joseph Lister. So how did he know? How did he know that there was germs, that well, they were real? So let me, let me take you back to sort of before he walks on the scene. So these operating theaters, they were filled to the rafters with ticketed spectators. People actually bought tickets to see someone get their leg hacked off. Oh, God. <laughs> how and, much did it uh, cost? Uh, I, you know what? No one's asked me that. I don't know how much a ticket would cost uh, for that <laughs> that spectacle. Now I really need to look into that. Um, oh, but God, people, would. people would pay to watch that. They pay, but look what they pay to watch now, right? Yeah, you know, we I could guess. say, yeah. you know. And when I sent you my book, I, I signed it and I said I thought that being strapped to the Victorian Operating Theater was the original fear factor because uh. I can't imagine anything worse than being strapped to this table. Yeah. And so we're talking about before anesthesia, so you're fully awake. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorite surgeons is this guy named Robert Liston. He's 6'2". He's really tall for the 19th century. And he could hold you down with his left arm and he could take your leg off in about 30 seconds. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Which is what you'd want. That's what you'd want. You um, would, but that's still a long time. It is, yeah. I mean, if we just sat here for 30 seconds with dead airtime and you could think about, you know, yeah. hacking through that leg. Or just scream and, for 30 yeah. seconds. <laughs> I wonder how many people would be at the end of this podcast. Like five people would be still out there <laughs> listening. Um, so so he was incredibly fast. He was known as the fastest knife in the West End. He would walk in. He was a showman. So he'd walk in and he'd say, time me, gentlemen. And you could just hear the ripple of pocket watches as they there came is. out. There's a, dr- a there drawing he is. of him. Yep, there he is. Um, and he's packing. using a knife in that photo. Yeah. Yeah, so actually the Liston knife that he invented was this um, long-bladed knife, which they think Jack the Ripper may have also used, um, Mm. which is why those rumors are that Jack the Ripper may have been a medical practitioner. But, uh, yeah, that was a really common thought, right? That, yeah, I mean, we're never going to know who he is. Right. It's, it's unknowable. We're, we're still kind of obsessed with this. Uh, I've heard so many different versions of that. Yeah, and recently there was some kind of bogus DNA test of, of a shawl that they said belonged to one of the victims, but it's impossible to, to prove the provenance of the object. Right. But that was, that was Liston, so he's 6'2", he's really tall. Um, one of my favorite stories is he would go so fast as he was t- uh, switching in instruments he'd hold these bloody instruments in his mouth just to like oh. illustrate how different this was <laughs> Jesus, that's the face i wanted <laughs> i wanted to just be just totally disgusted through this whole segment um and as he was switching instruments he accidentally caught, cut off his assistant's finger and then as he was switching instrument he slashed the coat of a spectator and the assistant died of gangrene the patient died of gangrene and the spectator died of fright so it's jokingly died of fright. He just died a little of bit of blood. Well, it's, he he got slashed in the with the jacket, and I guess he had a heart attack from the stress. And so it's jokingly referred to as the only operation with a three hundred percent mortality rate. Oh. He did a good job that day. He killed three three people in one. When you say slashed, you mean he cut the spectator or just got he just blood cut, on? No, them? he just cut their coat. As oh. he was kind of switching instruments, that's he all slashed. it took to kill someone. I thought people were tougher back then. Well, not that guy. <laughs> now oh. he lives forever in the butchering art. Is that guy? So he, had he, died a, of fright. he had a heart attack. He must have had a heart attack. It said he died that's, of fright. Maybe that wasn't real. Maybe that it was like horseshit. Doesn't it a little bit? Like <laughs> Are the you guy calling dying? me out? No, not you. No, <laughs> no, no, no. The historical record. No, of course record. these stories. You know, yeah. they get they get blown out Hyperbole of proportion. And, yeah. yeah, it just seems like. You cut someone's jacket; they're not going to die. <laughs> well, it's it, you know it's a stressful situation. People are getting their limbs hacked off. You know your blood pressure would be <sighs> really high. Um, I get it. And the and these theaters were. I mean, the the floor of the operating theater was crowded as well. So they'd have to actually clear the floor sometimes. So you can imagine, you know, you're strapped to this. And the leg wasn't the worst thing. So one of the tweets that you shared of mine, which uh, your platform seemed to enjoy quite a lot and sold me a lot of books, by the way. Thank you. um, Was this story about this guy who was suffering from a bladder stone and it got stuck in his urethra. And so out of desperation, he stuck a nail down his penis and he hammered it to break it up. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. And uh, yeah, people went nuts on your platform for that story so they they obviously are ready for this interview how did that work again it didn't work right it did not work no he died yeah whoops that guy definitely died um but it's it really illustrates how desperate people were back then and how few options yeah they had yeah, um, there, there's the image of it i don't think you're allowed to show this on youtube jamie <laughs> you get banned oh, it's a that med- was the one i said definitely a medical <laughs> 
medical yeah. image. It is, sure it is, it is a medical but image. But I don't it's... think you could show that on YouTube. Really? That's clearly a penis. <laughs> there's there's penises and breasts on YouTube. I sent Jamie a mm. lot of penis yeah, photos. I think they look at us more carefully. <laughs> All right. Well, it's not on there. I'm just... <laughs> okay, good. If people want to see it, well, tweet. Twitter is the most open of all platforms. I let you get away with almost everything. You can have porn on Twitter. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't have any problems with Instagram. I put that stuff up, but... Yeah. But maybe again... Some I'm, things get removed yeah. from Instagram. It's really kind of interesting. It, it seems to be dependent upon how many people complain. Yeah, probably. There's yeah. there's always those people out there mm-hmm. looking to be offended. <laughs> I just think they just want to do something. They just want to press that button. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. mad. There you we know? go. Yeah. I know. I get, uh, you know, at this point, there's so many objects that that can cause offense, of course, with medical history. And it's, it's you know, yeah. there's a lot of dark history, body snatchers and things like that. And I'm a firm believer that we should tell these stories openly because they happened and medicine and science grew as a result of it. But but they're not easy subjects to discuss with mm. an audience, especially when you have so many characters on Twitter and you're you're trying to get out a complex idea. But Right. And also, like, you're not just gr- – there's a lot of sp- – Twitter pages that I follow where people are just trying to gross people out. Like yes. You're actually educating people about the history. And we, and we also should be really thankful mm-hmm. that these people went through all this stuff oh th- gosh, so that yeah. we don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. I always say to my audience, so I, I've been going around the world sort of demolishing romantic notions about people what might think about what it's like to live in the past because it was pretty, pretty bad. Mm. And um, I, I have visuals as well. And um, I've had four men faint so far. It's, nice. it's always been men. It's just a commentary right now it's always been men ancestors of that bitch that got his jacket cut and died it was that guy (laughs) yeah those those weaklings coming to my lecture and i think what it is though is um people think i'm gonna see something gross so i'm not gonna eat and then their blood sugar plummets so it's not really the grossness but they're not really prepared you know and that's interesting yeah and they're standing sometimes um i i give lectures at this incredible museum called the old operating theater in london it's the second oldest in the world and so you have to stand because it's like a victorian operating theater and so people lock their knees or whatever oh wow so you give actual lectures in the real theaters where they used to cut yeah yeah i did my book launch there and um if people want to see it it, um (laughs) i filmed sort of a like a theatrical um scene of a young lister attending an operation in that theater and it's on my youtube channel called under the knife um and i really want to get this made into a movie Mm. um i'm trying to come into hollywood and convince hollywood that this quaker surgeon from the victorian period deserves the cinema uh feature but it is an epic story he saved more lives than any other person to wow. ever live. Look, look, it is an epic story. And for anybody who's ever gone through operations, and I've gone through several of them, we owe those people a massive debt. Yeah. You don't have to be awake, strapped to the yeah, table. I mean, or... I've, I've both my knees reconstructed and yeah. you wake up and they're fixed. Yeah. Yay. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and in the past, before anesthesia, a lot of times patients were sat in chairs, so they weren't laid down. Um, and they were sat in these very high chairs so that their feet dangled, so they couldn't brace against the knife. If you think about mm-hmm. like pushing off with right. your feet, of course. Um, there's a there's a story about a guy named um, Robert Penman, and I know we have images, and I'm sure YouTube won't take those down. Um, he he comes to uh, Robert Liston, the fastest knife in the West End, in, the eight, in 1828, and he has this huge facial tumor growing. I mean, it's been growing for about eight years. It's taking up his whole face. He can't breathe now. 
And Liston looks at him and says, I can't do this operation, which is tantamount to a death sentence. But he goes up to Scotland and he goes, there he is. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's incredible when you see that painting. Um, mm. So Penman goes up to Scotland and he sees a guy named James Syme. And Syme agrees to do this operation. And Penman is sat for 24 minutes in a chair, restrained, while this thing is cut out of his face Jesus and dropped Christ. in a bucket. And, and, um, Did he survive? Yeah, well, we have a picture of him later in life. Um, oh, wow. You know, and he, he looks, looks like he's going, hmm. Yeah, he looks kind of like an ugly Abraham Lincoln, and yeah. Lincoln wasn't really known for his looks. I bet um, he's psyched that he doesn't have that thing on his face, though. Yeah, I mean, I mean you could that. see that the jaw is definitely slimmer. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't look too deformed considering what he went through. So it is incredible. Um, you get such crazy stories. Like there's a woman who has a mastectomy in 1840 without any anesthetic. Now at this time, you would have, if you were wealthy or if you're middle class, you'd have this operation in your home. So oh, you just God. have it on like your kitchen table. Oh, Jesus. Um, which, is, which would have been safer than going into the hospitals. Really? Yeah, because the hospitals were crawling with all kinds of infection. So hospitals were places for the poor. And um, mm. to give you an idea of how gross it was, the bug catcher, who had rid um, the beds of lice, he was paid more than the doctors and surgeons in this time. Yeah, because, I mean, that's pretty important, right? There's maggots, all kinds of things crawling around in these hospitals. So if you were wealthy or middle class, you had your surgeon come to your home. And so she uh, has a surgeon come, and the surgeon determines that, yes, the breast has to come off, and says, I'm going to return, but I'm not going to tell you the day. Which would make me more anxious. He thought it was going to help her not focus on it, but mm. all you would be thinking about, right, is when is this guy going to show that's a, up? That's a person without breasts. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> he was like, I'll just show up. It'll be easy. Um, and so he, he shows up and he goes into her bedroom and he opens his hand and shows her the knife he's going to use. And he says to prepare her soul for death. Like, this isn't very confidence-inspiring. Oh, Any doctors listening, don't tell your patients to prepare their soul for death. And, um, and she, she does survive, and she talks about how it's so vascular that the blood blinds him at one point. Oh, and so, like, God. just when you think it can't get worse, he can't see. And he's under um, – she is under his hand for an hour and a half when oh, he cuts God. away. And she survives. She, mm. she ends up living – a long and somewhat happy life. I'm sure she had a lot of nightmares. Yeah, there we see a... So do they tie this woman down? Like, how do they handle Oh, yeah, this? they would have definitely had to restrain her. I mean, oh, I mean, so people they... were probably a little bit stronger or more able to adapt to pain than we are, but nonetheless, there would have been some pretty heavy restraint. What, what year was this? That was in the 1840s. Do so. we know when cancer became common, or was it always common in humans? That's that's a good question. The oldest uh, archaeological record, I believe, is 2,000 years old of metastatic cancer. Oh. So it's older than you think. They're um, diagnosing it for, for centuries and centuries. I'm not really an expert in history of cancer, but it is around. And so with breast cancer... You know, probably by the time it got to the stage of mastectomy, it probably would have spread. If you mm. think about, like, you know, it being visible to the naked eye. But yet she survived. She did survive. And so then you have to question whether she had breast cancer or maybe it was some kind of cyst? just like, yeah, maybe a cyst. And she went through that for that. Oh. But yeah. And again, it, before antiseptics, before Lister comes on um, and comes up with germ fighting techniques, this would have been so dangerous because you have this open cavity and wound. Yeah. And so Joseph Lister, when he comes up with his antiseptic techniques, he actually performs a mastectomy on his sister on his dining room table. Oh, Christ. Which, and she survives. And, and oh. that's in the book. See, this. This would be a great movie, don't you think? Yeah, I do think it would be a great movie. <laughs> I, it's like, 
it would be a great movie for the Coen brothers. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, because it's so chaos filled. I and, know, and uh, all that kind of grittiness. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, they do good period pieces too. Yeah, plus they could make it more entertaining. Let's make this happen, Joe. <laughs> I have no pull. <laughs> I'm not a part of that world. But this guy with the face, where they cut that tumor out of his face. So for 24 minutes, that's all it took to cut that thing out of his face? In that that case, yeah. And remember, of course, it depended on the skill of your surgeon. Mm-hmm. So he goes to a, a very good surgeon named James Syme. Um, but there, there's a story. So going back to penises, um, there's lithotomy is the removal of the stone, um, which you saw kind of a, a, a demonstration there. Um, and it was incredibly painful. So they stuck a rod down the penis and they cut through the scrotum. They <laughs> removed the stone. And of course, there was no pain medication and it was just awful. Did they drink? It, you know, it's kind of a myth because, of course, drinking would thin your blood. Mm. Um, but someone asked me, they said, I heard that surgeons would punch the patient out. And I was like, wow, oh, you'd God. have to be really good to knock someone out on a first punch. And of course, you do more damage. You could do a lot of damage to the head. That's definitely didn't happen. Unless someone can prove me wrong. Maybe there's like a weird example. But I've never come across that. Mm. Um, so, so it was kind of, it was you and the surgeon. And um, with the lithotomy, it takes about, a good surgeon, it took about five minutes. Well, there's a guy named Stephen Pollard in 1828 who goes in to have this done. Now, it's incredibly embarrassing. It's, you're, you know, you're naked from the waist down. It's an embarrassing operation. It's painful. He's brought into the theater, and the surgeon ends up taking over an hour because he's so inept. And the patient is screaming, you know, please just stop, just stop. And um, and the surgeon yells back at him for having abnormal anatomy, which, <laughs> how would you like that? You're sitting there on the on the table and you're being blamed for this going wrong. And he pulls through the operation, but he does die of post-operative infection. Abnormal anatomy, how so? He just said, you have abnormal anatomy. And so on the autopsy report, it was revealed that there was nothing abnormal about his anatomy. The surgeon just was really inept. Oh, God. Yeah, it so wasn't good. So he's blaming the guy. Uh, did you have lunch before this? <laughs> yeah, I did, but I'm all right. Good. That's Well, Don't that's good because it. then you won't faint. Right? Well, I hosted Fear Factor for six that's years. That's true, yes. I've seen everything. Yeah. Almost nothing What's makes like me What's like the worst? I mean, was there ever a segment on Fear Factor that you thought, ooh, I don't know if I can watch that? No. No. I d- uh when they had a drink come, that was rough. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was that what got be. the show canceled. <laughs> yeah. But that was uh, the second version of Fear Factor when it came back for a brief period of time, and they were going way too hard. They were trying <laughs> going to a little outdo too themselves. Further, yeah. Yeah, they were like, Fear Factor's back, and it's crazier than ever, and they just went way over the top. That's what they do with TV, right? Like, yeah. just always pushing the boundaries. They didn't have to. No. <laughs> they could have just gone with regular Fear Factor and we would have yeah. all been fine. We could do historical <laughs> Fear Factor. We could like yeah. recreate these sort of horrible was, things. That it was a blessing through. in disguise. <laughs> but um, this, this surgery as we know it, when did it first start? Like, what is the first historical re- re- recounting of a, an actual doctor? Oh, or you mean um, someone, someone saying they're a licensed doctor? Well, or, when or did it start? Them, like, like asking really hard questions. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, no, no, I've, I know so little about history. It's like 19th, mm. 18th century. Um, it's it. You know, we have evidence again in the archaeological records of of surgical procedures going far back. But who did them? They would have been, um, you know, sometimes wa- they call them wise women, cunning women, um, barber mm. surgeons. Barber. So one of so, my, <laughs> yeah, the part barbers. Barber, part, well, I guess they were good at razors, right? Yes. Yeah. Actually, barber surgeons used to do things like pull your teeth. They used to bloodlet. <sighs> 
And so the barber pole, which is red and white, is red and white because it was advertising their services as blood letters. So what they would do is they would tie these bloody rags around the pole and it would whip around the pole. I know it's one of my favorite oh my stories. God. And um and the the ball at the top represented the bowl that would catch the blood and the stick would have been the stick that you held to kind of get your veins to stick out. And people were bloodlet for all kinds of reasons. Like you would do it like a purge or a diet or or you would do it because you were ill. Um the idea being that you had produced too much blood and you needed the blood to be let to, to kind of restore balance in your body. What do you think it would be like to go back in time and hear someone say something that stupid? <laughs> Like, you're sick. We need to remove well, some of your blood. You have too much blood in your system, you're gonna Lindsay. Send, you're going to, Joe, you're going to send all these like crazy academic historians who are like, we can't. Yeah, Barber, there you go. Surgeon, there's you got the tonsorial services. What does <laughs> that mean? And you know what else? The barbershop quartet comes from the idea that the barber surgeons often had a musical lute in the office that you would play or the patient would play. It was like a musical therapy. Um, so there's all kinds of hangovers from it. And you know the demon barber, uh, Sweeney Todd. Yes. So this is kind of a one of these stories that pops up, and they think that it might be that medical practitioners were trying to um, undermine the legitimacy of the barbers. So you kind of either get this story that the barber is this like sort of demon figure who's chopping you up and selling you and making you into pies or... Is that a legit one? Because that seems like nonsense. Uh, it's, well, it seems I, like it's a recreation of it seem, an older one. Well, it seems like parody. Like, look, it says, listen to my troubles, no charge. Listen to your troubles, 50 cents. They might have had that on their barber thing. Yeah, when they're cutting bullets out of you, it says bullets <laughs> removed, two bucks. Maybe, I don't know. They're all drunk. Pomade, mustache, <laughs> wax. I yeah, people, people thought that bullets were... Uh, that gunpowder was poisonous. So a surgeon mm. would often amputate if you were shot. Oh, God. Um, until they kind of realized that sometimes it was okay to just keep the bullet in, depending <sighs> on, on uh, where it was. Think but it, it could just be like a recreation of something that someone found, maybe, and they're selling that as a piece, maybe, oh, something like that. right, probably, yeah. Yeah, and we get the, we get the red, um, blue, and white barber poles now. So what happened was the barber surgeons and the surgeons split off professionally at some point in history. And so the surgeons start to use blue and white poles and the barbers use red and white poles. Whoa. And I think now the red, white, and blue is is like the patriotic red, white, and blue. But, but the traditional barber pole would have been red and white and it would have signified that you could come in and get your bloodletting because those those bloody rags would have been out there on the pole. Um, before they had the pole, they would advertise by putting just bowls of congealed blood in the window. Oh, Christ. And, <laughs> and then in London, they decided, I think it was about the 14th century, they said, no more of that. So the barbers started to throw the blood into the river, which was also equally Terrific. gross. Yeah. So the barber surgeons would have definitely um, been doing minor surgical procedures, and they would have been more affordable than the surgeons and the physicians themselves. Um, but nobody could really do much for you in that period, according to our own sort of 21st, under, you know, 21st mm. century understanding. Um, but I always say, to go back to your question about, you know, um, how would it feel to hear something so dumb? Well, what do you think today that, you know, in 100 years we're going to look back at? And there's there's definitely going to be stuff, right, that oh, we're going to sure. look back and go, I can't believe that, <laughs> you know, oh, we used to do is. that. In fact, I, I think that this is probably going to get people to go, no, that totally works. You know that, that – um, 
uh, trend of cupping yes. now that you see. So that was also 17th century. So they would cup, they would have these heated cups and they would create this blister and then they would cut it open with mm. this really sharp instrument and that's how they would bleed you. Mm. So it's kind of this weird thing that's coming back, but for slightly different reasons. I don't think there's any evidence that cupping is real. No, I don't think so either. And I and I like to point people to the past because if we're going to make fun of you know what they were doing in the past, it's kind of making a... A yeah. reappearance, so to speak. Um, but people do all kinds of uh, weird things now, too. Like, they eat the um, placenta. Yeah. There's I, there's no medical evidence that that has any kind of health benefit. Yeah, but it's edible. I think that's why you, yeah. you, you can eat it. Well, it's funny because that actually segues <laughs> into into this lovely object, this half skull here. Um, mm. My friend Zane Wiley creates these. These are actually cereal bowls. <laughs> oh, great. But, uh, and the reason why I brought it was because it, um, opens up a conversation about something that I like to talk about, which is corpse medicine. So people used to actually eat dead bodies um, for medicinal purposes. Um, what parts? So if you had epilepsy in the early modern period, so we're like talking like 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, um, people would drink the blood of an executed criminal. So someone oh, who lost their boy. head. Like the idea was that the life cut short that the blood was very powerful force. And so you get these sort of um, drawings of people gathered at the scaffold. You know, this poor bastard's going to lose his head. And these people are like holding cups up to catch the blood. And, and it didn't work. And epilepsy was so awful because it was so misunderstood. And you can imagine, you know, when someone goes into a seizure, it's, it's, um, it's scary. And if you don't understand what's happening, you could think that it's witchcraft or there's mm. all kinds of things that... Um, people thought about that disease. So these people were quite desperate. So they were drinking the blood of executed criminals. Good Lord. They ground up um, mummies, ancient mummies, and they would make it into pills and really? did all kinds of things, right? So I, so I always point this out. We eat the placenta today. It's kind of like, you know, a form of um, ingesting bodily... Uh, yeah, see, yeah, the there you go. You got the, yes. So people were just super, super desperate back then. Yeah. People, I mean, of course, there was not much that could be done, right? But, but we do some kind of form of corpse medicine and organ donation. So we're taking dead body parts. We're not eating them, but we're taking right. them into our body to cure ourselves. Yeah, I have a uh, cadaver graft on my right knee. Oh, yeah. I have ACL. one in my jaw. Really? Yeah. Your jaw? What I had, happened? Well, I had a, got in a huge fist fight. And, uh, mm. <laughs> um, I had uh, some gum disease up here. And then they had to, like, graft a little, like, piece of cadaver bone. Whoa. But they don't call it cadaver bone. Did they call it cadaver bone to you? Don't they call it um, freeze-dry bone or something? No, it wasn't bone. It was, uh, they call it an allograft. But it's, oh. uh, it's a cadaver. They use the Achilles tendon for the ACL because oh, the Achilles yeah. tendon is much larger than an ACL. Right. Okay. So it's stronger. And if you don't, if, are you familiar with the way it works? It's really kind of no, interesting. No, The way it works, it's not like it takes over. <clears throat> it's not like an organ transplant. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you don't have to worry about your body rejecting it in the same way. Although some pe right. sometimes people's okay. bodies don't accept it or it doesn't work. But um, they take this graft. They put this new tendon in place, this new uh, ligament in place, rather, and okay. then your body reproliferates oh, that ligament with cells. So it's even though it'll feel like it's healed up within okay. like a month or two, like your okay. your knee will feel a little bit weak from the surgery, but people get a distorted perception mm -hmm. of how strong it actually is, and fighters 
Yeah. Uh, in particular, I know several fighters who have wound up re-injuring their knee yeah. because they thought it was okay. Real, really, it was very gummy and very weak. So how long does it take to heal before like you can really... Like six months. Yeah. So it's yeah, long... like six to nine months, they recommend. But it's amazing what <clears throat> we can do now. I mean, oh, when incredible. you think about... 150 years ago that I'm talking about and today yeah, it's just the, and, and I always because I'm a big Joseph Lister fan I always say that if we hadn't understood germs there would be no way to go deep into the body would there? Sure yeah um, and so he opens up this sort of huge field with medicine and a lot of advance, uh, advancements are made off the back of it but um, but it was it was a gritty time, and um, it definitely <laughs> you you definitely could die very easily. Life mm. was very cheap back then. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine uh, just the the idea of that woman getting her breast removed on her kitchen table. Yeah, there was for an another. Hour. Um, there was a little boy. He was twelve years old. His name was Henry Pace, and he was told by the surgeon he had to have his leg removed. And he said, as little kids do, "Would it hurt?" And the surgeon said, "No more than having a tooth pulled." Oh God! So he was very unprepared. So they brought him to the operating theater, and he was so awake and so aware. He remembers counting six strokes of the saw before his little leg fell off. Why did they have to cut his leg off? He broke it, and um, Jesus if, if you had a cut, <laughs> it was just a sprain, and they just decided to take it off. No, I mean, if there was a compound fracture, the chances of it um, becoming infected was quite high. So when Lister comes along and he's trying to figure out what's causing <clears throat> infection, he notices that if it's a clean break and there's no break in the skin, usually it heals okay. But if there's a break in the skin, it gets infected, and usually it leads to some kind of gangrene or septicemia. And mm. that's how he starts to wonder, it must be something coming from outside and getting into this wound that is causing um, the infection. But he reads Louis Pasteur's germ theory, and this is how mm. he starts to put it together. But when he first comes out with it, you know, p- there's a lot of pushback because medicine and science are essentially conservative in the sense that it's like puzzle solving. If someone, you know, you, you solve the puzzle within the rules that are already set out. If someone comes from sort of the fringe and has this wild idea, usually there's a lot of pushback. And so that's exactly what happens with Lister. And it's hard for us to imagine because germs, we understand them today. It seems obvious to us. But back then, a surgeon didn't wash his hands or his instruments because why would he wash his hands or his instruments if they were going to get dirty with the next patient? So you have to get into the mind, the logical uh, mind of a Victorian surgeon. Um, They wore aprons. I think Jamie, I'd also sent a picture of like a surgeon with with his apron on. Um, Actually, it's a picture of a butcher. um, But it gives you that kind of idea of of what your friendly Victorian surgeon would have been wearing. And um, that apron, the more blood it had on it, it was like a a sign of pride almost because that meant that your surgeon was very experienced and had a lot of blood on it. Um, That's a a butcher though. That is a butcher. But yeah. similar tools of the trade. Yep, similar tools. And, and certainly that apron would have been on your surgeon. I don't know about the hat. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of like gangs of New York, you know. <laughs> exactly. You kind of you picture they would have worn those really tall top hats and um, those crazy plaid colors. And it's, it's a very colorful time before Victoria, of course, plunges the nation into mourning um, later. So Lister's coming in along uh, the 1840s. So it's very sort of colorful and filthy and dirty. Everybody's... Victoria plunged the nation into mourning? What do you well, mean Well, when, when her husband died, um, she went into sort of lifetime mourning. So she's always wearing black for the rest of her life. 
and everybody oh. follows her example. Oh. So we think of the Victorians wearing sort of all that black. But in Gangs of New York, a lot of people thought that that was sort of an imagined world. But actually, that's what they would have looked like. They would have been wearing those plaids and those bright colors and those top hats. But Lister was a Quaker. We think of like Quaker oats, which is, is kind of accurate. Um, and he would have been wearing sort of black and white and very dull colors. Mm. So when I think about this movie, because I think about it a lot, I think about sort of this world being very hedonistic and colorful and there's a lot of drugs going on. Um, They're discovering ether and all kinds of things that they're experimenting with. And then you have this somber Quaker. And as the movie sort of progresses, the world catches up and gets a bit cleaner with Lister. So they were experimenting with all these drugs on, oh, on yeah. themselves? Oh, yeah. It was like, <clears throat> the, it was just a crazy time. So Ether is, so my book um, begins with the first operation under anesthesia. And I wanted to start there because I think if anybody has ever thought about the history of surgery, which they might not have until they turned into this podcast, they tend to think of that moment. That's the big moment. But actually, surgery becomes much more dangerous because because the surgeon still doesn't understand germs, but he doesn't have the patient fighting him anymore. Mm. Um, so he's more willing to pick up the knife and go deeper in the body. And so post-operative infection rises. And it, and it opens with the great Robert Liston, and he performs the first operation under ether in um, 1846 in London. And, um, and he doesn't think it's going to work. It comes from America. He calls it the Yankee Dodge. Um, and it's a miracle. It works. And the age of agony is over. When ether was discovered, everybody wanted to try it. This drug that made you insensible, what was that like? And so you get these kinds of stories of medical students sniffing it and drinking it. In fact, I believe there's still a place in London you can get an ether cocktail. Um, what? Again, I don't, <laughs> I don't endorse it. It's highly <coughs> flammable. So people also smoked a lot in operating theaters. So you can imagine that there were a lot oh, of... Oh, Christ. Yeah, there were a lot of accidents. Um, but but <laughs> you drop it on a... Basically, because it evaporates really quickly, you drop it on a straw and then you dunk it into champagne and it's supposed to get you really high very quickly and then it wears off equally quickly. I tried hmm. to convince my publisher to have ether cocktails at the book launch, but they were like, eh. "Just have a bunch of Ubers ready." Yeah, Stand by. yeah, exactly. Just yeah, or carriages like in the Victorian. Um, so, so people were yeah, definitely trying. And then of course, have you tried it? I've not tried it. I haven't found that bar yet. But yet but you were rumor. willing to experiment on the people that came to your book launch. Hell yeah! Why not? That'd be the best thing. Great story, you know. I would um, feel like you should people... probably dip your toe in first. Yeah, maybe, maybe try it out. Yeah, um, maybe for the next book. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. And so, so you have ether in sort of the mid 19th century. And then of course, later you have cocaine, you have, um, opium, which is, um, well, actually cocaine comes along and is presented as sort of a, a cure to the opiate, uh, the morphine addiction. So like take oh, cocaine wow. instead. And, um, I had brought, it's in my Mary Poppins bag. Um, I'll show it to you later after the show. I brought a, a postcard that shows a dentist and he's pulling a tooth and the person wrote underneath just had a tooth pulled with cocaine. So they were, they were using it for all kinds of things. And doctors were becoming addicted themselves to these drugs. Um, then heroin comes along. Bayer invents heroin. Heroin is uh, given to your children. It's put in all kinds of things. Again, it's um, it's positioned as you know, break your cocaine addiction now with heroin. So it just it was Whoa. just a crazy period, and it was really in sort of in the early 20th century when a lot of this stuff started to be regulated finally. Wow, <laughs> I didn't bring any of that <laughs> with me. I, I believe there was a mummy that was found in ancient Egypt that tested positive for cocaine. 
But they think that it might be a false positive because apparently there's something else that they would consume back then that would make you test positive for cocaine. I don't know. Yeah, Jamie will find it. But there was it was some it was some evidence. I think what they were trying to connect this to. Now I remember they were trying to connect this to the idea that people from Egypt had the ability to travel to the Americas, and that someone from here it goes. American drugs and ancient Egyptian mummies. Can you make that a little larger, please? It says, it seems safe to say that blah, 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 blah. In 1992, a new study of nine mummies from ancient Egypt created quite a stir when it was announced the discovery of traces of nicotine and cocaine in their hair. Both of these chemicals came from plants found only in South America, and this research has since been touted as evidence of pre-Columbian contact between America and Africa, something thought to be impossible based on the rest of the archaeological record. So what's going on? Let's start by looking at the evidence. Uh, bah, 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 bah. 1992, uh, the performed by Sav- Svelta Balabanova. and well two, That's a serious woman. <laughs> and two of her colleagues at the Institute for Anthropology. And, well, this is uh, in Munich. They're using German words yeah, I would, for I would skip anthropology, that. <laughs> and probably in humanities, of uh, mm. the university in Munich. Uh, the tests were carried out by nine mummies, uh, on nine mummies, Munich Museum, dating from... Uh, 1,070 to 395 BC. The study focused on hair samples, which were often used to ex- uh, assess drug concentrations in the body. Do, 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 do. The results, what does it say here? What well, they discovered, all the mummies tested positive for cocaine and hashish, which makes sense. The results caused an immediate stir. What the, f- come on, let's cut to the chase here, folks. <laughs> First thing to say, archaeologists are not just being stubborn about this. There are many reasons not to think the traces of drugs in nine mummies means... What is it? What is the conclusion? Cut to the chase, you fucks. <laughs> this is a real Hashish, academic article yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> nicotine, cocaine. Okay, back up. Back up. Cocaine. Stop. Okay, cocaine, most of us think of today, was first discovered in early civilizations. The uh, Andean region of South America, the chew and the coca leaves, exactly... Instead, the cocaine and possibly the nicotine, too, were actually being introduced to the mummies as part of an embalming process. Huh. That's interesting. Whoa. More likely they obtained cocaine from America. Okay. I don't know. I give up. (laughs) There's no way. We'll have to read this. You did a good, yeah. I tried. Yeah, you tried. This seems like it's going to take a long time. (laughs) Many resins and spices, hold on a second, were certainly used this day. We aren't entirely sure what they all were. Rare or exotic materials were almost certainly used... And it is far less of a stretch to suggest this included imports from the Middle East and potentially as far afield as India. Hmm. I don't know. I think they, they're, they're very skeptical about the idea that people from Egypt uh, were able to travel all the way to the Americas where right. cocaine was. But I think oh. I think part of the conclusion was that there were some other things that would make that you test positive for cocaine. Oh, it's interesting. It was sort of like poppy seeds make you test positive for heroin. Right, right. Yeah. Like if you have to go for a drug test for work, they say don't eat poppy seeds. Don't bagels. eat that pop. Yeah, wasn't there like a Seinfeld there, episode? I'm looking at that? the Wikipedia for it too. It might have been part of a thriving tourist scam in Egypt in the Victorian area. So they might have like mm. said it was there and so people would come look and then, oh. you know. Wait a minute. Said what was there? The cocaine. It says, uh, since passing these corpses off recently deceased as ancient mummies was a thriving tourist scam in Egypt during the Victorian era. Like it could have, uh, I mean, I'll pull that doesn't make sense because the tests were done in 1992. After the experiments, even assuming the cocaine was actually found on the mummies, it's possible this could have been a contamination that occurred after With the discovery oh. or whatever. Yeah. Like okay. okay. So a bunch of cokeheads were fondling yeah. mummies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, they wanted those mummies because they wanted to eat them, as I said. You know, oh, they yeah. ground them up and they'd use they did that, all kinds ancient of Egyptian mummies they used yeah. that too. Yeah. Think about how much was destroyed because people had to eat <laughs> well, it. Well, I, I think about it all the time. There's a fantastic um, uh, exhibit. There you go. Cure all mummy. Oh, cure all mummy powder. <laughs> wow. Look at that. That is nuts. Mummy extract. It's cure all. Whatever yeah. you got, yeah, fix that's, it. You know it's a you know it's a quack remedy when it's a cure all. We still have quack yeah. remedies. You know, take a pill, lose right. a lot of weight. Well, it's those like late night quack. things that are causing people to lose weight and those late night infomercials. Yep. take a bunch of pills. Yeah, that's that's um, our modern day quackery. There's a fantastic exhibit that's uh, right now. There's an IMAX exhibit in Los Angeles at one of the museums. I saw it about a year ago, but they have a King Tut exhibit, and then. Um, on top of that, they have this gigantic IMAX theater, which is fantastic, oh, wow. and they show like all these different uh, tombs that they had discovered and how they discovered Amazing. them. And but it make, makes you really when they've discovered King Tut's tomb, we have no idea how many similar tombs there were that were looted over yeah. the you know yeah many, think many about how much was lost of years. yeah yeah absolutely I mean what we have you know in the museums is just sort of a fraction of yeah. what we know and and still stuff is coming to light it's just incredible mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah they they the Victorians are responsible for destroying a lot <laughs> for taking those mummies and, and just grounding them up so and strange. all kinds of things yeah but it's what what gets me is what was the mode like where was the theory like where did the theory come from like when you want to take some a mummy and make been, it in a powder <laughs> some of it would have been sort of folk medicine influence um you know there's there's this idea of sympathetic magic so um for instance if uh you if i stabbed you with a sword this gets very violent um you could be healed if i put this sort of special sympathetic powder on the sword it would heal you. So it was sort of this um, healing by distance. So all kinds of strange ideas existed. Oh. But, and that's why it's important when you're studying the history of medicine to really get into the mindset because it, it's so wildly different to the way we think. Right. Um, and, and, you know, actually, do you know what this is that I brought this? Um, if people are just listening, it's, it's a long beaked mask. Like a bird mask. Up. Yeah. I do not know what that is. Okay, so this a lot of people think this is a Venetian mask. This is actually particularly um, a particular example from Venice. It is um, what people would have doctors would have worn during the bubonic plague. So it's Whoa. called the plague doctor mask. And so um, it was invented in the 17th century um, by a French doctor. And the idea behind it was so people thought that disease was spread by this thing called miasma, which are like little particles in the air. They're sort of associated with bad smells. So if, if something smells bad, it's probably not good for you is what they thought. And it kind of makes sense because if like, you know, you're in a really, um, if you're in a slummy area of the Victorian period, it's probably has a lot of disease. It probably doesn't smell good. So that was sort of the thinking behind it. So what you would do is you would put sweet smelling herbs into the beak and so you would be smelling this in. It would protect you from those evil miasma. Whoa. Yeah. It's, and you know. Is that a real one? No, we don't actually have, um, I don't believe there's an example of a real one from the 17th century, but there's a lot of illustrations of the plague doctor. And he would have been wearing um, a hat. He would have been wearing a cape, um, leather gloves, like sort of just protecting himself. Oh, there you go. That's a real one? Authentic 16th century plague doctor mask preserved and on display at the, well, there you go. Another one. Dushten 
German Museum of Medical History. But I question that because it was invented in the 17th century. So if it's real, it's going to be a little bit later. Um, Interesting. But we don't know how much they were worn because they would have been expensive. A lot of doctors weren't very noble. So if the plague broke out, they got the hell out of there. Um, There was sort of a phrase, go far and go long. (laughs) You know, get out and don't come back for a while. There wasn't much they could do for you. They had a, a stick as well that they would sort of poke the patient with so they wouldn't have to touch the patient and kind of have them turn over and they can you know yes you have the plague there wasn't much they could do for you um we can cure uh, again, the plague this is they did not know what 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 germs were so they really right. didn't understand what the plague was they they had sort of a concept of of contagion so if you broke out with the plague they would probably quarantine you in your house um, and they put a big cross on the door. And so people would bring food and um, you'd, you'd um, you know, put a basket outside of your window with a rope and you take. And so they do that until everybody was dead in the house or that the plague had passed and they felt that you were uh, safe to come out into the general population. So there was an idea that these things were contagious, um, but not, again, in the way that we kind of understand disease diseases being spread today. God, it's so strange that they would... You would not know what was going on. Like people would no. just start dying, and you'd be like, "What is? is you would this think a curse? that it was. Yeah, it could be yeah. God's curse. Um, uh, and and people say, you know, oh, the plague mask is so terrifying. Um, it and is pretty creepy. Can it, I put it on? It's super creepy. But I always say that it's good luck. <laughs> this is why I brought this across the Atlantic so Joe Rogan could wear the plague doctor mask. <laughs> Yeah, how many people would know what that is? Like, if you went, you know, like, if you go to, to Venice, party? they they say plague doctor mask. Really? It's funny because I was just in Venice recently, and they were saying that you know the big carnival um, that they have every year. It's becoming harder to do because of security reasons. So you have like a huge population of a city wearing masks and covering their identities. Oh. So they're gonna, they have to cut back, which kind of sucks because you know oh, that that's like the suck. fun of the carnival. Um, so now they're they're. Um, uh, cutting back where you can wear them in public places and things like that. But, what a weird um, world we live in. Yeah, it is, it is unfortunate. Can't even wear a plague mask. Can't wear a plague mask. <laughs> I'm going to bring it back, though. I'm just going to be walking around in now, downtown LA. With how this. would that attach to your face? Was it like straps or something? Yeah, there would have been straps. Or um, in that other example he was showing, it looked like it was sort of a full-on... Oh, there it um, goes. I mean, that looks so creepy. It's so creepy, but... Death. Today, we have the modern plague doctor. What, what do you think that would be? Yeah, the 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 hazmat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you think about the hazmat going into hot zones. That would be pretty scary if you didn't know oh, what yeah. was going on. Um, and certainly sort of ominous, mm-hmm. you know, when you see the hazmat. So it it's a weird thing that exists be, because in a strange kind of way, it probably did protect the plague doctor because he was covering himself up, but it protected him for the wrong reasons. He he still didn't understand how disease was spread. Are you aware of the theory of alien abduction being a distant memory of childbirth? No. Yeah, there's a, there's a theory that is actually being um, tossed about that these people that have this ancient well they have this memory of childbirth right so all of a sudden you're being born there's bright lights above you there's a a man or a woman who's the surgeon with a mask that covers their face so all you see is their eyes okay and everything looks bright and and it's terrifying and clinical and you're on this Mm -hmm. table and everything's cold most of these alien abduction experiences that people recount they take place in some sort of uh, a medical facility yeah yeah and everything is bright and strange Mm. and cold 
and they think that what this is is they're they're saying that we had this idea that children don't have memories, that babies don't have memories. Oh, and and so they're yeah. saying, well, why wouldn't they have memories? That's ridiculous. Right. Of course yeah. they have memories. They have brains. They, they grab your right. finger. They look you in the eye. They would have a memory of every second that they were mm. born. And it's probably one of the most profound and disturbing memories because before that, everything is incredibly yeah. peaceful. Yeah. They're inside the mother's womb. You and know, then you're just like taken and out. And you're pulled and then, out yeah. and then you, there's this bright light above you. Yeah. You've never experienced any light. Yeah. So every, and your visual perception, your field of view is all distorted, right? This is oh, the first time you're using your eyes. That's why people have so the like same. So it's like tapping into this memory. Yes. This early memory. That's interesting. This yeah. is a theory. It makes hmm. sense to me because if you think about. It makes like, more sense than the abduction. So, well, it does because people don't really go anywhere. See, the thing about the abduction thing yeah. is they put like cameras in people's rooms and, uh, and they uh, say they have these alien abduction okay. experiences, but they don't go anywhere. So oh, what they're doing is they're dreaming. Yeah. I yeah. mean, which is The normal. mind is amazing and, and, a sure. and it's so powerful. And, and we know so little still. Yeah. So also it. like these, all these, I mean, it's, it's kind of duh because they all happen while you're sleeping. Yeah. Like 90 and you're plus right, they are, percent. They tend to be medical. Yeah. It's very medical around. in nature, right? Mm. You're being examined. And then there's also going back to childbirth. There's also a lot of people that have these experiences that they are being told that either they're taking their baby away from them or they're studying their baby okay. or that they had a baby inside of them that they didn't know right. about and that the aliens have put it there and they're taking it it's out. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it even goes back to the virgin birth, right? I mean, yeah, it's all, yeah. It's all very weird. But this uh, this memory that people have from childhood is uh, most likely, uh, you know, probably a pretty intense, powerful yeah, that's memory that's always there. Yeah, and your affecting, first memory. Yeah, and yeah. some people can tap into it, and some people can't. Yeah, clearly. sure. Yeah, yeah. That's it's also a theory. While natural childbirth is supposed to be less traumatic, mm. like women having natural childbirth in yeah. a bathtub. You know, like yeah. that that is actually well, we're kind of like moving back to, you know, it's um, men start to get involved in childbirth around the 17th century, 18th century. What happened before um, then? Is it was mostly out. women. Um, so women in the village would come. And actually the term um, gossip comes from the idea the women who would spread the word in the village that someone was going into labor, they were called the gossips. So they would oh, spread the word. Wow. It became sort of a negative thing later. So the, the gossips would spread the word. The women would come in. This was a female-only chamber, um, and men were not really allowed in. A man might be brought in if uh, the mother was dying or if the child was dying. And then in that case, instruments were brought into the birth, the birthing chamber. So mm. the doctor might come in and he might um, take these sort of forceps and, and pick the baby apart and take the baby out. Oh, the baby would die. God. But in those cases, it was like really extreme. Like this was going to happen. Like either the mother was going to die, the baby was going to die. Both of them were going to die. Or if the baby was coming out feet first. Yeah. I mean, but a, midwife, a capable midwife could could handle that. Um, but this you know the cesarean section people think that it comes from the term the, uh, the idea that Julius Caesar was ripped from the womb of his mother right. but um, it's unlikely that that story is true because his mother lives into old age so probably mm. the, the term cesarean comes from the Latin term meaning to cut and the first sort of uh, 
record we have of this happening, I think, is in the 16th century. And it's a farmer. And he takes the instruments that he uses to castrate his pigs to cut this baby out of his wife. Um, Yeah. And and we don't have any records of whether this this probably didn't work again. No idea of germs, all this kind of stuff. Um, We don't know if she lived. We, yeah, I don't have, there's no sort of, it doesn't follow, the records don't follow the story. Um, but she probably died, and the baby probably died as well. And for people who don't know, they uh, castrate pigs to make them more edible. They, uh, oh. they oftentimes uh, castrate them and then let them loose, because then oh. they, su- they concentrate on grass and not ass. That is an actual farmer's term. I, I have, you know... Talking about cesarean sections and castrating pigs. Who knew yeah. those two things would? would <laughs> well, that's what together. they do that's with the joy steers of this as well. Okay. The difference between a steer and a bull is a steer is castrated. Oh, that's they castrate them because uh, they make better steaks. Oh, things I learn on this. Yeah, you don't want a muscular, jacked bull. <laughs> no, you know, probably not. Be very steak. chewy. Yeah, and exactly. You uh, want yeah that bu- that buffalo above. Uh, my friend Adam Greentree wow. shot that in Australia, and they. My friend Cam was chewing on a piece of his for one piece for half an hour. Oh my gosh, it was that yeah. muscular oh, yeah. and yeah, I, mean, I guess that makes sense. Two thousand yeah. pounds sack of steel. So it was not good. No, not not the thing no. you want to sit down and have a meal. No, <laughs> I mean they say they vary. Like sometimes some of them you can eat. Yeah, you know, I mean you can eat them. They're Depending all it's all buffalo raised. meat. Yeah, yeah, but they're just insanely. Dense. It's crazy how big. I mean, when you see the skull, it's just it's, yeah. the size of it is incredible. Yeah, it's uh, it's also an invasive species, so they have no natural predators. So there's just thousands and thousands of them destroying the countryside, and oh, so wow. people travel up to the northern lands, um, Ardeland. I forget the the name of the place where they go and they hunt these things. Wow. Yeah, they're huge. Yeah, they yeah they are. Australia is a trip. I mean, it yeah. is a really a wildlife experiment yeah. because they brought in so many animals and right, that's New right. Zealand as well. Yeah. yeah, and they're not indigenous and they're just right, doing a lot exactly. of damage. Yeah. Um. So when you think about the history of surgery and the, you you concentrate on this one very particular time. In this book, yes. In this book. Yeah. But as a medical historian, like when, what, first of all, what led you to that? Like why, you seem so <laughs> it's normal. It's a real thing. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm super normal. Look at all these skulls and stuff in front of me. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm like that kid who never grew out of the obsession with Tales from the Crypt. And, oh, me too. Uh, yeah, Ripley's Believe It or Not, you Love know, the shrunken stuff. heads. Yeah. I actually did a, um, a, a segment for a documentary on the shrunken heads and I had to go out to Poland and I actually got to hold these things that I was always fascinated with growing up. Well, people don't know that like, they think the skull's in there. That's why they don't yes, understand. Like, how right. do you shrink yeah. your head? Yeah, and yeah. it's it's amazing because um, what they do is they obviously like, they take the skull out and it's a process and this documentary was looking at, they were DNA testing them because um, the tribe that makes these skulls, they were done for a specific purpose to trap the soul of the warrior that they killed so that there was a spiritual reason behind it. Mm. But what they were finding was that some of these shrunken heads were female, um, which probably means that um, as Westerners came into these areas, they wanted to collect these shrunken heads as curiosities, of course. And so they traded guns for heads. And so it kind of drove up the uh, the demand for these these shrunken heads. So they started killing women. Well, it, it wasn't just it, just anybody. And it might not have been um, killing them. It might have just been taking bodies of people who had already died. Right. But they definitely aren't all authentic in the sense that they were 
Um, killed in battle. Yeah, killed in battle. And so wow. it's just kind of an interesting. But I got to interact and, and see these shrunken heads. So I was that weird, creepy kid that, you know, no one really wanted to talk to. I joke that I was, I also um, looked like Barb from Stranger Things for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and my brother pointed this out. And we were watching Stranger Things. And then Barb dies and nobody gives a shit. And Spoiler I'm like, alert. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry, everybody. Um, and I was just devastated. I'm like, nobody noticed for, you know, like a whole season. But Yeah, they barely cared. They're they like, well, she's missing. Cared. Yeah, I guess she's missing. That no one no, cared about Barb. Last time we saw her by the pool, <laughs> I was I was really awkward. I was five seven by the age of ten, and I was just I was just like that weird kid with tales from the crypt. And so I kind of so I went on to study history in college, and then I went to Oxford and I did a master's and a PhD in it. But academia is not it's isn't doesn't allow me to be as creative and weird as I'd like to be. Mm. So now I'm just a storyteller. I'm a freelance writer and I do this YouTube channel and I'm sure Oxford's going to be like, give us the PhD back at some point. <laughs> Can they do that? No. <laughs> well, there's a real value in that in terms of education because what you do is very interesting and entertaining. I mean, that's why Thank I started you. following you and retweeting your stuff. It's really... No, I appreciate that. You know, it's funny because there is this sort of tension between um, what they call popular history and academic history. And I will get, like, academic historians will come at me on Twitter and stuff. And this one guy said to me, well, you're just an entertainer. And I was like, well, that's not an insult to me. Like, that's, why that, is well, that an insult? Well, that's not true. You have a PhD. Like, <laughs> yeah. hey, stupid. Yeah. I went to school. I should have just said that, you know. Yeah. Like, what um, does that mean? You're just an entertainer. Yeah. Just, it's like, it's like I'm bastardizing the subject. Exactly. In some kind of, you know, way that they don't like. Well, well, it's because of people like me, but I'm like, ew, gross. And then I retweet it. <laughs> I know, exactly. Like, and then <laughs> it makes it. I mean, and then they, they of... want it. You know, like I did this thread on Twitter called Your Victorian Doctor's Trying to Kill You. And every tweet was like um, Coca Rats, Cocaine Lace Cigarettes, which you had also mm. um, shared at one point, and just all the kinds of crazy things. And then at the end of the thread, I said, But what is it about today that people will, will look back? But, you know, this one academic was like, This is really, um, you know, bad history, and you're, you're making it fun fun how dare you you know it's oh, like that kind so of a, yeah, offense of that but it's, but for the most part people enjoy it and and that's nice well that is like the the big complaint that people have about academia is that it's so stuffy yeah yeah and we, i'm gonna get like so many weird what? academic trolls i know it's just it's one of those things like i've had to make peace with mm -hmm. um because i i am a storyteller and if you look at my profile i call myself a storyteller first rather than historian but they're great um, stories though they're this great is stories this for us in 2019 we're so incredibly fortunate to have you know actual real doctors with real modern medicine <laughs> to fix us and you real know talking to a guy who's had probably five surgeries yeah you know i mean yeah. it's god it's so i know i had an appendectomy and it was it was amazing they use little tiny robotic instruments now and they they barely make you know i think the incisions like an inch long or something it's yeah, just a incredible. buddy of mine had shoulder surgery and the 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 actual cuts are like millimeters tiny little yeah. cuts you barely can see the scars. It's, and they it's fix your shoulder. amazing, and you know, f with your knee surgery, it was uh, an injury from um, activity, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and you think about people in the past; they weren't necessarily well. I mean, there were there were sports and in co competitions, but mostly people were getting injuries from repetitive, strenuous labor that they were doing. Sure. Um, there's a story of a of a cab driver in the 18th century, and he got this aneurysm behind his knee. So um, the cab drivers in the 18th century wore these high boots, like riding boots, and mm. it would rub at the back of the knee, and it created this huge aneurysm. Ooh. Um, and there was a 
surgeon named John Hunter in London who said, well, normally what you do is you would hack the leg off because if oh, it pops, right? God. If it pops, you're going to bleed out. But he said, I have an idea. I want to cut into the leg and I want to tie off the blood supply to the aneurysm. I want to see if that works. And it did. And he saved this guy's leg. And that's really important because, remember, these people had no options if they couldn't work. A lot now, of these people did. when you say aneurysm, like, people think of aneurysm and think of a brain. Right. It's like a um, – what's the, what's the term? It's, um, it's a specific kind of aneurysm. It's almost like a um, balloon that oh. appears on the outside, sort so of on the outside. So just a big of, sack of blood. Big sack of blood. Why didn't they think they could just drain it? That's what I would think. I like think a if, hematoma. You se- if you severed it, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'd be like, slow down, doc. <laughs> yeah, don't don't hack that leg off. I gotta drive this taxi, bitch. <laughs> yeah, and if he had lost his leg, it would have been. And what's incredible about that story actually is that he that Hunter saves the leg. And then when the man dies, right before he dies, he, he knows he's going to die. This is many years later. He writes a letter and he wills his body to Hunter. So this is one of the first early to examples on? Uh, to, to take the leg and to open it up and dissect it and to see what happened. And so Whoa. that leg is on display at the surgeons, uh, um, sorry, at the Royal College of Surgeons in London. So they embalmed it? Uh, yeah. Well, he would have preserved it probably with um, wax injections, almost like plastination. Oh, like um, they like did an with early that form. body. Uh, yeah. The, what is yeah, that, that body weird exhibit? Guy, um, body worlds. Yeah, what uh, do you think about Gunther that? Ben. I was very torn when I was walking around this because what a part of me was saying, this is really fascinating. It is, and the other yeah. part of me was saying, what is the difference between this and like fucking Ed Gaines house where he made <laughs> lampshades out of people? Well, yeah. I mean, one would hope the, the difference is consent. Um, but one I, would hope though. That's, yeah. One would hope. Well, there, there has been controversies with certain ex, uh, exhibitions, maybe not body worlds, but there's been some spinoffs where there's been a mm-hmm. question of where they got those bodies. Yes. And of course, if, if, if you're also going into sort of poor areas and asking people to hand over their bodies, is it really consent? Because sometimes these families don't have money for right. funerals. And yes. so there's other incentives. But I, I think my view is, why, you know, it's it's given under the guise of science that we can only view dead bodies through the lens of science day. That's the only acceptable way. But it really is art. Um, and I wish that it would just be more openly recognized as just art, whether it's you, yeah. your kind of thing or not because some of it is posed in really shocking ways right. that are unnecessary to teach anatomy. Right, right, right. So, so, you know, if you're going to say it's an anatomical lesson, why does the person have to be posed in this sort of dramatic way? So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it would be better if we just called it for what it was. It's art and it's supposed to be provocative and shocking and that's why people come to see it and it, we're morbidly ab- curious. It is absolutely interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, and people say, oh my gosh, uh, the Victorians bought tickets to the operating theater. Well, people come to my Instagram account, you know. I mean, we're still morbidly curious. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's really interesting that it's called a theater as well. Did yes. you ever see that movie with Benicio Del Toro? Uh, the, I think it was just The Wolfman. It was no. one of the more recent werewolf movies. But he becomes a werewolf in the operating theater. Oh, So the no. doctor is convinced... Okay. The doctor's convinced that he's uh, a madman, there's something wrong with him, so they give him electric shock therapy and all these okay. different things. And what's the period that it's, it's supposed to be? It's supposed to be in this period. Oh, in the 19th yes. century. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's in London. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, see if you can find it. It's kind of a crazy scene. You know, the, the doctors were experimenting with um, uh, electricity a lot and galvanism and things like kind of reanimating the corpses, which oh, is where we get the story boy. Frankenstein. Um, and they were also interested in 
how long do you live or your conscience after um, you're beheaded? Right. So there's these exper- these experiments during the French Revolution where they're like shouting at the heads to see if the heads will blink. Um, oh, God. So I'm sure we can't uh, air this on YouTube. So this will only be us watching this because if we air it on YouTube, they'll, they'll do right. a... See, that's exactly what the theaters look yeah, like. Yeah, he's like saying that he's going to kill all of them. Like, you, you need to get out of here. And uh, they, this doctor is uh, very arrogant and they're dealing with him and the moon turns full and he starts freaking out. And it's, it's really interesting because if this was actually how they had patients strapped in, is that accurate? Like the way that chair is set up? Yeah, they would have, I mean, so his feet, it looked like his feet were on the ground. So the chair would have been higher. So his feet would have sort of dangled. Um, it's one of the best ever. And I'm a giant werewolf fan. I am. This is one of yeah. the best ever. Because um, this was actually done by Rick Baker, who's the same guy who did an American Werewolf in London, which is the werewolf that's out in the hall. Okay. Oh, yeah. Lobby. I took pictures yeah. of that. Yeah. <laughs> I met does. him earlier. <laughs> yeah. But this is uh, the modern version of it that they decided to make. And, you know, the thing is that these guys are watching this and the doctor is arrogant. And he has his back to the patient while he's discussing. And it, that's exactly that's what those theaters would have looked like as well. Yeah. Um, but they would have been just so crowded that is so strange though that this was like this was entertainment this was something that people wanted to see well you know it wasn't just sort of the morbid curiosity it was also that the victorians were obsessed with uh, uh sci- scientific progress so they wanted to come in and see right <laughs> i see that they want to see what they're the all getting was. the hell out of there now in they're this trying. clip <laughs> for people who are listening yeah this is a, it's not yes. a good movie but it's a a, a <laughs> It's a great scene. There's a bunch of great scenes in this movie. I enjoy it just because I love werewolf movies. Yeah, yeah. It would have been fun to shoot. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's also they decided in this movie to make it with a minimal use of CGI. That's and yeah, yeah. What they decided to do is do it all with um, actual and, yeah, yeah, rubber masks and things like that. Yeah pretty ridiculous movie honestly <laughs> it actually it's funny because um it sort of reminds me of of again liston the the 6'2 giant he got a, a patient on the table who had to have a bladder stone removed remember how awful that was <sighs> and this guy was like fuck it i'm not gonna do it he jumps off the table he runs across the room locks himself in a closet and liston <laughs> liston all six two of them chases this guy rips the door off and just drags him back Oh, my God. So, you know, and that really happened. Again, be a great movie. Anybody listening? Yeah, you're really pushing this movie <laughs> hard. Remember, are, you, are you trying to sell that while you're out here? No, I mean, I'm... I guarantee you someone is listening that can make that happen. Listen, I, 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 you know, I could sell the rights to the book, but I've held on to them and I'm developing them with um, my producing partner because this book was born out of a lot of trauma. So a couple years ago, I went through a really bad divorce and I was facing deportation as a result from the UK. And so I had no money. I they took my passport, everything. Like I couldn't do anything. So I wrote this book. And so I always say that Joseph Lister saved a lot of lives, not least my own, because it's kind of lifted me and it's been a rebirth. Um, So I really want to be involved in the process. I've always been fascinated with movies. I want to kind of see how the sausage is made, so to speak. You know, Mm. if you're a writer and you just sell off the rights, you're not, you don't really have much creative input at all. Right. Um, But yeah, I just think that you know, it's it's a great story because it's it sort of crosses with the with people who are interested in the horror genre, right? Because you get the 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 surgery, the Victorian surgery, but it's an uplifting story about something that changed the world and the way we fundamentally understand it. Who do you envision playing Lister? I see Bradley Cooper. Oh, <laughs> what do you think? 
Okay. There you huh? go. <laughs> Jamie's like, whatever. Perfect, perfect movie <laughs> star. quickly trying to think of someone else, but yeah. He could basically good. do yeah. every movie. Sure. Yeah, yeah. He's I, like a quintessential movie star, right? He is, he is. Yeah, I was thinking um, Eddie Redmayne, the British actor who's like, he's so sweet and Lister's a very sort of Who's that guy? He's in um, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the, the Harry Potter. He's 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 really big in Britain mm. or Benedict Cumberbatch. Well, that guy's awesome. Mean, yeah, Benedict Doctor Cumberbatch. Strange. I think Benedict Cumberbatch would like to play Liston, the 6'2 mm. guy, because yeah. it's, it's a real theatrical role. Well, Cumberbatch, um, is, he's another guy who's awesome and everything. Amazing, yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening, Benedict. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's killer in Doc, Doctor Strange is another movie that's not the best movie in the world but he's killer in it yeah and he's tall you know he could play Liston Uh he's you know we could bulk him out a bit and Uh (laughs) there we go (laughs) does he have to get would you like a role in this no is it maybe the patient thanks (laughs) the guy who jumps off yeah i'll be the guy who gets his dick hammered with a nail No, thank you. You don't want to be the guy that dies when his coat is slashed. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. I'll be that guy. Yeah. I'll be the guy who faints. Oh, good heavens. And just fall down oh, and gosh. passes out from fright. Yeah, yeah, that's a good role. Yeah. Um. So this book sort of, you were in quite a bit of personal anguish yourself when I you was, created this yeah, book so yeah. you have this deep attachment to it i can c- completely I do, understand yeah. that it's my first book and i'm, I'm working on an um a new book on the history of plastic surgery aha uh-huh. um and i'm it's, fascinated with that as well yeah it's it's interesting so i'm i'm looking at a guy named harold gillies who was rebuilding soldiers faces during world war one and if you've ever seen these guys photos i mean it's we have no problems you know you you think we have no problems in the 21st century when you look at these guys because they've been shot through the face and their mm-hmm. jaws are missing. And Harold Gillies um, really um, designs uh, or starts plastic surgery as we know it. And it was a time when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing your face made you a monster. So these guys are really isolated. And so mm-hmm. what Gillies does is he gives them their identity back. So it starts on the battlefields of World War One, and it's going to kind of follow Gillies throughout. I like to do character-driven stories. Even though they're mm-hmm. 100% true, I like to sort of follow medical history through the eyes of one particular person wow yeah uh, the the history of plastic surgery is fascinating to me uh, and i'm hooked on that show botched oh yeah people always that mention show that. is so crazy this is me watching Botched. <laughs> this is me all the time like jesus yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ, what are you doing, man? Stop doing that. And what people put themselves through, right? Oh. I started following some plastic surgeons on Instagram just to kind of know what what you know they're doing today, and and thinking about the ethics of how they target people on social media, um, and how do we feel about that? And I'm telling you. I'm 37. I'm feeling bad about my body. I can't imagine if you're like 14 and awkward in your barb, you know, mm. and you and you and you have access to these accounts and the effect it has on on young people on Instagram and everything. Well, but, I had Jonathan Haidt on the podcast who wrote uh, this book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and uh, mm. one of the big things that he discusses is people comparing themselves to others through social media and children, particularly yeah. girls. Yeah. This higher instances of suicide, cutting, depression, yeah. much higher instances of depression. I believe it. Yeah, yeah I believe it too. It's, yeah. it's crazy. And then you see someone like Kylie Jenner who transforms herself literally mm. from an ugly duckling to a beautiful swan. Yeah, yeah. And it's all done through the knife. And it's it's crazy. And that's that's the whole thing. Like that that kind of beauty is unattainable really. Sort of naturally. Oh yeah, this is... This is Harold Gillies, um, one of his patients. Um, and what, wow, that's the end? Yeah. And what he did was um, he invented this thing called the tubed pedicle where he would take skin and he would, it w- he basically create a tube and he could place it 
somewhere on the face where the defect was and the blood supply would make it attach and that guy did an incredible job on I mean that for, guy's for nose. 19 that, that's probably 1917 right there it's, that's like better than a lot of the people on botch <laughs> it really is I'm it not just, joking particularly yeah. the final product and that's Gilly's down down there that um, yeah that's another man no he was incredible and really, when you think about what these guys went through, too. Yeah. Um, so the so my book is starting um, with this guy named Piercy Clare who shot through both cheeks and, and his face is just blowing off. And to get off the battlefield was half the struggle because it, if your face is blown off, most of the time the stretcher bearers will just pass you up oh, because they think you're going to die. Um, but it was a survivable wound. And so just getting off the battlefield, you know, so you sit there for 12 hours, oh maybe you die in the process. And you have no food and you can't eat. No food. And that was the other thing so a lot of these guys died because well intending nurses would lay them down and if you don't have a jaw your tongue slips back into your throat mm, and you choke yeah or you suffocate um so so just getting to harold gilly's hospital so he starts this incredible facial um and jaw unit in britain during the war just to get there was a battle um, and then you have to go through all these painful operations and so I want to look at that and then of course like how does that become what we do today but equally I always tell people that botched is one form of plastic surgery but of course there's a lot of important surgeons doing reconstructive work yes. um, you know and now we have face transplants which are incredible. incredible I don't know Jamie if you can find someone who's had a face transplant but yeah, there there's are, been quite a few I th- yeah there's there's you know the I think the hardest part is finding the donor mm-hmm. it's hard to get people to donate their organs as it is but think about a face is so personal yeah um and the last one national geographic did a a, a spread on it it was um a, a 18 i think it was an 18 year old girl who shot herself in the face and um in a moment of rage and um and and anyway she ended up having this face transplant about three years later and the, the donor face, I think, was someone who was in their 30s. Um, this person had died, I think, of an overdose. And then the family decided to give this face over. So it's it's actually incredible what we can do when you think about, you know, from the battlefields of World War One to what Gilly's doing to where we are today with facial reconstruction. And it's just going to get better and better. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is going to get better and better. And for people with disfiguring injuries and things, it's yep. fantastic. Yep. My, what what freaks me out about botched is the psychological aspect of people constantly tinkering with their looks. It's just yeah, and thing. and now they have apps where you can upload your face and you can change things oh, about your face. Boy. And it's just we're we're all becoming more and more insecure. I think with social media, um, and and yeah, it's part of this world where we where nothing is real mm-hmm. um and well, that's the other part of it is a lot of these pictures aren't real no like people are doctoring their photos to make themselves yep. look different than they actually do look and then i know someone see those. walks into the studio and you're like wait that's not the that's oh, not boy. what i thought that person was going to look like uh th- this uh woman who's friends with my wife her neighbor is a model and she takes all of her photos with no makeup on and then they put the makeup on her oh my gosh yeah, i didn't know they could do that yeah that's how they do it they do it all through wow. Photoshop. So she wait, Jamie. Can you do that for? Can you, can you edit this video? <laughs> they can do whatever. You can turn yeah. you into an avatar yeah. lady. <laughs> you can do anything. But it's kind of crazy that they they take photos with no makeup and then yeah, they add I had the no blush idea. and the eyeshadow and That's all that. Wild, yeah. Damn. We nothing's real. Nothing's mm. real anymore. We kind of just. 
well, we're, I think we're, I mean, I don't want to go down this road in this conversation, but I think we're preparing ourselves for a time where nothing is real. I mean, oh, I think yeah. we're preparing ourselves for a time where we live inside some sort of a simulation. Yeah. And I think um, it, it's interesting because celebrities like yourself have to really think about how your image is used after you're gone as well now, like something that you didn't have to think about. So um, there was a, a commercial with Audrey Hepburn in Britain and um, she's, it's, it's a galaxy chocolate commercial and she's there and it looks like she's eating a chocolate bar and so the ways that they can manipulate images and um and i think for the first time a lot of celebrities need to really think carefully about whether they're okay with their images being used in certain kinds of ways after their death like who owns your image it's just like when you look at medical history in the past you don't own your body. And so a lot of these surgeons get hold of these bodies to dissect. Mm. Um, and they're digging them up from from graveyards. There were body snatchers. They called themselves resurrection men. And they would go into these cemeteries and they would dig up these bodies. And they would oftentimes strip the body naked because it was, it was illegal to steal possessions from the corpse, but not the body itself. What? Because there was, no, I, there was no concept of the body being sort of property. So they would throw the clothes back into the grave. And, and they were really clever in the ways they did it. They usually sent a woman in the daytime to, to masquerade as a mourner. And she would kind of go through the graveyard and she would see where the fresh graves were because, of course, you'd want the body to be as fresh as possible. And then at nighttime, they would go in there and they would dig up these bodies. And they could take as many as 12 bodies in a night. It was like hard labor. And it was very lucrative. Um, because the only legal bodies to dissect in Britain um, in the early 19th century were bodies of executed criminals, of people who had um, murdered other people. So, so if you murders. went to the like to say goodbye to your nana and drop some flowers on her grave, and there's just a big hole in the ground. Well, they would cover it up, but um, you do get these stories of uh, people finding out that a body. So, for instance, I think it was in 1785. Um, this person goes to this graveyard and discovers that a body is missing, that a body has um, been snatched. And everybody in the village goes to this graveyard and digs up their relatives and, and drags these coffins back to their home until they could make the cemetery safer. Oh, my God. Which is insane because people were really feared this. And um, so yesterday on Twitter, I put up a picture of something called a cemetery gun. So they had these devices that they would put at the foot of the grave and it um, had like a trip wire. And so you could set up the gun to shoot anybody oh my who would. Oh, God. And there's there's actually a really awful story of a grieving father who – this was set up at the grave, and he accidentally trips it, and he gets shot. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't exactly a safe way to, to protect the bodies. But they also had that. watchmen. Look at there that. There it is. That's from your uh, <laughs> That's Instagram from yesterday. or your Twitter feed. That's Twitter, yeah. Everybody oh went nuts God. on that yesterday. Cemetery gun. 19th century used to protect against body snatchers. <laughs> that is so crazy. It's a musket. Yeah, it was hardcore. I mean, you'd have to be quite wealthy as well to to set something like that up at the at the foot of your relative's grave. They also used mm. coffin collars. So that was sort of a, like an iron, um, well, it was it was a collar, and they would nail it to the bottom of the coffin. So that way, so what, what a body snatcher would typically do is just open the foot of the grave. He wouldn't dig up the whole grave. He'd smash open the lid, and he'd have instruments to kind of drag the body out. Well, if the corpse is nailed to the bottom of the coffin, you're going <sighs> to have a lot of trouble <laughs> dragging that body out. So people, you know, you know, they did all kinds of things. They put these cages over the over the graves um, to protect them. So people, uh, the internet, God bless it, uh, will say to protect against vampire or to, to keep vampires from coming. It had nothing to do with that or zombies. Mm. It was to um, prevent body snatchers from getting a hold of those corpses. But, you know, those bodies. Look at this. 
Yeah, there they are. Mort safes, they were called. Oh, my God. And you'll see them a lot in Britain. <laughs> um, and they're, they were people were very paranoid about this. I mean, you can find a lot of exa- examples of this. And bodies were stolen a lot. And thank God they were on some level, right? Because think about how much we learned from these bodies. Bodies were needed to be dissected to teach medical students. Yeah. And um, one of the scenes in the book, I talk about the dead house. They called it the dead house. And everybody had a different experience in the dead house. There's probably people listening who've, who've been in a dissection room and you have a really – uh, vivid memory of that. It's probably bright and white and clinical. Well, these places, the bodies would have been bloated and partly decomposed. Uh, dissecting bodies was dangerous because you could cut yourself and you could infect yourself with bacteria. They weren't wearing gloves. Um, and so you get uh, examples of people cutting themselves and dying within 48 hours. So going into medicine was dangerous. And um, there's a story in this book about uh, a guy who goes into the the dead house for the first time and he freaks out and he sees all these like mice and rats and things like that eating the bodies. <laughs> and, oh. and so he jumps out the window and he, and he runs off. But later he becomes accustomed to it as we all become accustomed to horrible things at some point. And he actually starts taking pieces of the corpse and throwing it to the poor little starving creatures that oh. are in the dead house. And Jesus. yeah, so he's kind of like, you know, that, that horror that we all experience possibly when we, when we're confronted with death to accepting it as you have to, as a medical student, if you want to go on. Um, so the dead house is, is particularly, it would have smelled, um, dissection would have, would have been a winter sport because the bodies wouldn't decompose as quickly. You of course wouldn't want to be dissecting in the heat of the summer. Right. Um, and so did they literally have seasons for dissecting? Yeah, they would, they would tend to teach students in the winter. So and did they colder. wear like winter jackets and do yeah, it they, in a well, cold? They would have probably cause well, they had a fireplace at the end of the room as well. It would make it really mm. stuffy and smelly. Right. And you couldn't really predict what a person had died from as well. So remember, people are dying from things like smallpox, which is awful. Yeah. Um, and this is before mass vaccinations. This is certainly before antibiotics. And so a lot of doctors or medical students die as a result of going into the profession. Oh, wow. So are they getting it from these corpses, people that died? They, they can get inf- bacterial infections, certainly. And just being with patients. If a patient comes right. in with smallpox. Um, and in smallpox, a lot of people, I don't know if I, did I send you a picture of smallpox, Jamie? Um, a lot of people think, oh, it's, it's like chicken pox. Like it's Mm-mm. not like chicken pox. It's, it's a really awful disease. Um, and it's the only disease that we have eradicated ever in human history. Yeah. Um, which is incredible. So it's, it's one of those ones. Yeah. They're, yeah. It's, it's unbelievably bad. Ooh, it makes me itch when I look yeah, at it it's, as well. It's horrific. Um, very you see children with it. It's just, and it was so common. It was very common. It was, it was very feared as well because it was so disfiguring. And so yeah. if you were, for instance, a wealthy woman and you got smallpox and you were scarred, your family might worry that they couldn't marry you off. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, it was one of those diseases that left its mark on you literally. Um, and, and it, it also had a high mortality rate as well but it wasn't like chicken pox no there's my my psa (laughs) it's not like chicken pox well it's uh you know it's one of those things that we're so thankful that people have figured out 
how to get rid of something. Yeah, and and um and smallpox vaccine was invented in the 18th century. Most people don't know it's it's that old. Um, That's Dr. incredible. Yeah, Edward Jenner invented it, and actually the biggest anti-vaxxer movement or uh, protest happened in the 19th century. Hundred thousand people turned out to march in Britain against Jenner. People thought that um, their children would turn into cows because he used cowpox, the virus cowpox, to bestow immunity onto people, and so there was this huge fear that, um, you know, it was dirty to kind of insert this animal virus into people. And so there was this big protest, 100,000 people, to protest the fact that six parents had been jailed for not vaccinating their children. And so this story is, is much older than we think. And the fears that we have about vaccines are, are not that dissimilar to what people worried about in the past as well. But Jenner is an incredible figure. That is incredible when you st- stop and think about the fact that this is still going on today yeah. with the internet. Yeah, with yeah. All the, I mean, you can find out. I mean, I had Dr. Peter Hotez on recently to talk about vaccines right, yeah. and, and the misconceptions that people have. And he explained that they've isolated a bunch of different environmental factors that and genes that contribute to autism, but that it all takes place in the womb. Right. But people don't right. want to hear that. No, I mean, it, and that is the danger of the way information is now spread, of course. Echo chambers. It is. It's, you know, it's confirmation bias is the real danger that in people the past, get around. It, wasn't, it, it was actually harder to get that message out. But um, a lot of, uh, you know, you get famous sort of um, cartoons of of people sort of turning into cows. So the cartoonist, my new husband is a cartoonist. And so it's like this this way of, this powerful way of kind of conveying images and fears and stuff. And mm. um, so, yeah, people, people had that fear of um, vaccines for a long time. But Edward Jenner coming up with his vaccine undoubtedly saved millions of people's lives. Undoubtedly. Yeah. It's just so it's so amazing that that's the problem is still around today. Even with all the information that we have available. Yeah, I think, you know, there was um, a Fox News uh, uh, newscaster who recently said that he doesn't wash his hands because he can't see germs. I don't know who it was. I think he was joking. Hopefully he was said joking. the next day he actually washes his hands. I hope so. So people were sending that to me because, again, like yes, Lister. Right. And, um, and I, I always tell people, you know, it is that idea of what you can't see. It's hard to convince people. Mm-hmm. And with Lister, you know, if you think about it, here's this young guy and he's coming along and he's saying there's these invisible little creatures and they're killing your patients. And trust me. I have this really weird instrument called a microscope and I can see them. And it was a leap of faith. He was also accusing the older surgeons of inadvertently killing their patients because if they weren't washing their hands, they were leading to higher mortality rates. So they probably fought against it as well. Yeah. So there was there was huge pushback. So what Lister ultimately does is he turns to the younger generation and he changes their minds. And so it's a slow burn. It's not like, you know, the movie moment, unfortunately, where it just happens all mm. at once. And it takes quite a long time. Um, and it's it's weird that it takes so long because if you think about him coming in 1876 to America, it's after the Civil War, people were dying, soldiers were dying of high infection rates. They were packing wounds with mud. I mean, it, it, they couldn't get worse than that, right? And so people were dying of all, the, all these kinds of infections. He comes to Philadelphia to convince the medical community and speaker after speaker just denounces him on the first day. And then he gets up and he he does his demonstrations and he starts to slowly change people's minds. But it takes a long time. The the cover of the um of the American book is um 
the American version, I should say, is um, a famous painting by, I don't know if people can see that, by Samuel Gross. It's called the Gross Clinic. Um, the guy in the middle, it is gross as well, but the guy in the middle is Samuel Gross. And he so didn't believe in Lister that he would walk into the room and he'd slam the door and he'd say, there, Mr. Lister's germs can't get in anymore. And you can see in this that he's, stick- he's wearing his street clothes. He's sticking his dirty fingers into this wound. Um, <laughs> and there's a woman in the background and she's um, covering her face and she's the mother of the patient and she's wearing black because she expects her son to die so so this is the u.s cover and for the uk cover i think i sent that to you jamie um it's uh i sent you a a picture of both covers side by side it's another painting by eakins and it was done within 10 years and it's called the agnew clinic and it's totally different because the doctors are wearing white there's a sense that they understand germs there's a sense that antisepsis is being used there so that kind of before and after shot in such a short period that lister is able to change the world what made you choose uh different covers for the uk and the u.s version well so that's actually writers don't oh there you go so you can see so penguin published it in the uk so they've stylized the original painting, but you kind of get a sense of what it would have looked like. Um, and, and actually, you have women uh, appearing in the um, operating theater professionally as nurses. So this is after the Florence Nightingale revolution as well. So it still looks different to the way we operate, but you can definitely see a difference between those two paintings. Can you refresh my memory on the Florence Nightingale revolution? So Florence Night- Florence Nightingale is a in this book a little bit, people always wonder why I didn't speak about her as much. But actually, she didn't believe in germs at first. She thought Lister was quite uh, hysterical with his idea of germs. But she was working towards sanitation in hospitals. So they're working towards the same goal, but just with different, slightly different tactics. So she revolutionizes nursing um, to make it a more respectable profession. Before then, nurses, you wouldn't want your daughter becoming a nurse if you were from a well-respected family because... It was she would be privy to the male body. So you wouldn't want her interacting with male patients. So really kind of lowly, um, poor women went into nursing. um, And it wasn't really a respected profession until Florence Nightingale comes along. And there's this sort of revolution. So the revolution is not just about the profession, though, but it's about the sanitation reforms that she brings about in the hospitals. So you see that on the cover as well. But there's there's also another guy. I'm sure there's like, I can I always like sort of predict comments. I shouldn't think about you know what people are going to say, but people tend to get mad um, like when I give lectures because I don't talk about this guy. There's there's groupies out there um, that love this physician named Semmelweis, and I do talk about him in the book a little bit. So Semmelweis was this groupies. I call them groupies. Semmelweis groupies because. Every time I give a talk, there's always one person who asks this question, and I have to smile to myself, and I'm like, ah, here it is. And they say, well, I, I think you'll find you haven't talked about Semmelweis. Semmelweis uh, was, was practicing in Austria, and he was putting this idea together that if you wash your hands and you go onto the hospital wards, infection rates went down. Um, and they called, he was ridiculed heavily. They called him the hand washer. And he ends up being put in an insane asylum. And it's this really kind of sad, weird death that he has. And, um, and he's really sort of um, persecuted for these ideas of hand washing and, and infection rates. He's doing it a little bit before Lister comes onto the scene. Lister's not aware of Semmelweis's work. But equally, I always tell people that Semmelweis doesn't really do it first if we're, if we're going to play that game. Because... Again, there's a difference between the basic sanitation 
and then understanding why you're implementing it. So until you understand that germs exist, it doesn't make sense. You can't really convince people. And that's where Lister comes in. He takes Louis Pasteur's germ theory and he's able to convince people um, in the medical community that germs exist. Hmm. So until we understand, you know, again, why wash your hands if they're just going to get dirty? That's amazing. So, so again, I, why did you have two different covers? Oh, yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, so the, the publisher just picks whatever covers they want, uh. basically. Um, so my U.S. publisher had come up with this. My U.K. publisher came up with a, a, a cover I didn't like that much. And so I said, well, why don't we use the second Eakins painting so that they're um, in conversation with one another? So I like that. They mm, kind of complement nice. one another. I like the font better on the U.S. cover. I know. I love this Victorian font. And, and I think the image of that guy wearing street clothes is just more It is. It's so evocative. Yeah. I know. Um, it's just uh, this book, this cover actually. So it's been translated, I think, into about 15 languages now. So wow. most of them kind of take this, this image. I was wondering if you knew what this might be. This is So it's a circular metal, metal contraption. Um, with teeth on the inside for people who are just no listening. no idea. What is that? So this is called a jugum penis. This is an, a Victorian anti-masturbation device. What? <laughs> so, yay, there's the real one. This is this is a prop that I use for under the knife. Um, that's the real one. So what would happen is if the person got an erection, it would clamp down oh. and obviously kill the erection pretty quickly. Can I see that? Yeah. <laughs> that's one we made for the show. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. But it's basically similar yeah, to it's what... It's similar. If you see like the one on the screen, it has um, like God, a, it's a spring device. <laughs> so these they were trying why were they trying to get people to stop masturbating so the victorians were obsessed with with masturbation yeah. um and there's probably a lot of people out there who know that kellogg's cornflakes came out of this sort of obsession with yeah. masturbation well, please tell people that story we heard it from dr chris ryan oh it's so funny well it's funny in a haha kind of horrifying way um kellogg was was obsessed with with masturbation he thought that a lot of his patients were suffering from all kinds of mental ailments and physical ailments because they were masturbating too much and he thought that a diet Diet bland in um, bland and high in fiber would kind of kill the fire in the belly, and so he invented what became Kellogg's cornflakes. Strange, but his brother was the one who commercialized, and his brother's like, we should add sugar. And Dr. Kellogg was like, no, people will be masturbating all the time. We can't add sugar, you know. And they had this, like, split, and Kellogg's Corn Flakes became the commercial version with the delicious sugar added in. And so that was the brother's idea. It was the brother's idea to add the sugar and make it sort of delicious. Wow. Oh, yeah. The, oh, yeah, That's that was uh, um, uh, illustrated by my husband. We do all kinds he of... He did that? Yeah, oh, for, that's for the YouTube. Oh, so that's not an original. No, no. Worried your son and heir is becoming <laughs> a dirty little self-abuser? Stop all contemptible is this an actual text from uh, uh yeah you know i have i, I doubt don't know it if, i don't know 13 if he cock lane <laughs> yeah. i doubt it stop there all... is a cock lane in london though uh, <laughs> i bet there is stop all contemptible onanism what is onanism masturbating and onanism have you ever heard Thanks. that mm. <laughs> with the infallible and modestly priced jugum penis, penis. So yeah. was that a common thing during the Victorian era? So, um, yeah, you get, I mean, it, the idea that masturbating is bad for your health goes to the 18th century. We kind of tend to think about it as a Victorian obsession because it, it becomes um, more and more um, accepted idea in medical 
uh, terms. But that it's yeah, bad for you. That it's bad for you. And you get these like sort of drawings of men like languishing on the couch because they masturbated too much or whatever. So a lot of dudes out there right now that can relate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so out of energy, of <laughs> you know. They just need the jugum penis. Yes. Um, and, and also there's another one I sent you, Jamie. I think the, the sort of like looks like a flaccid penis. <laughs> This is another really, one? This is really high. Yeah, they came in all shapes and sizes. And, mm. Oh, boy. Yeah. Like, now it would probably just be, yeah, there Are you is. supposed to pee out of that? Yeah, maybe you could, Seems actually. like there's holes at the end of it. Like, you have to just... Oh, there's, my God. There are Imagine examples. what that thing smelled like. <laughs> oh, Christ. And look at that never... ball at the bottom with the hook. <laughs> How, that seems super uncomfortable. <laughs> like, where is that? That thing sits in between your legs? <laughs> I don't hook? know. So it must be like a hook where you could strap it in. Strap it in, yeah. That's, <coughs> that's like a uh, a Thai steel cup. I don't know who's coming on the show afterwards, but they got a lot Ron of... Ron Okay. <laughs> good, the good news is Ron is a hilarious comedian, so we're, okay. we're all good. <laughs> we might have to d- redo the entire show just with Ron and yeah, get, yeah. get his take on all this stuff. Yeah, just show him the... I'll just leave these objects behind and, you know... God, the cup do is a so... Little... It's so gross. <laughs> it is gross. And the fact that you had to pee out of those, it looked like a, like a spaghetti strainer at the end of it. I knew. I thought, you know, when I was going on the show, I'm like, what can I bring Joe Rogan that's going to, you know, stimulate the conversation and anti-masturbation device? It's that's, always a crowd pleaser. Well, with men, it's always, <laughs> it's it's always, always an issue. a fascination, so yeah. they thought that it was causing all these ailments. They thought yeah. it was causing all these different problems. Yeah, and um, graham crackers as well. Um, come out of that. So Reverend Graham was also obsessed with masturbation, just like Kellogg. And so he created this sort of dry, tasteless biscuit. So everybody, you know, crumbling them into their... Meanwhile, uh, little did he know that someone would invent (laughs) s'mores and make it pretty fucking awesome. (laughs) You know, you add marshmallows and chocolate. Or the graham cracker pie crust, right? Right, So we're just like, now, you know... I don't know if it works, if people feel like that that's helping them with their masturbation problems, but hey, leave a comment. What's just crazy that people didn't, most people have no idea that that was the origin of this I stuff. I know, that's what's so funny, you know. There's there's so many, like Listerine, graham crackers, Kellogg, cornflakes, all this kind of stuff that, that has sort of a medical background And to wasn't it. there a medical background in um, the term hysterical? That hysterical was related to it's, women. Yeah, the idea that the womb wanders. Like, mm-hmm. so people thought that the that the female womb was a, like an animal of it, in and of <laughs> itself, which I don't, you know. Um, and it would move around the body, and so you, they would even do things like they would smoke it back into place. They'd put like smoke. They would put like incense and all kinds of things to kind of like get it, like coax it back into place. I can't even imagine the people are going to start following me after this They're <laughs> based gonna. off of these, Don't worry these about weird it. stories. They're Come to my platform. I have tons of different stories droves. like this. <laughs> but there was, um, there was a time where women would go to the doctor to get stimulated as well, right? Is that, that true? Oh, or gosh. Is that... So this is like a little bit out of my expertise. I think that's been proven to be false, actually. Mm. Um, but but there was, I believe, and I could be wrong on this, that there was a Victorian idea that a woman had to orgasm in order to become pregnant. Yes. So that was that was an important part of it. That wasn't just a Victorian thing. I'm pretty sure they taught me that in high school. What? I'm Are you pre- serious? Yes. <laughs> what high school is this? Or like, exactly. If you want to get a woman pregnant... Make well, sure it was she part orgasms. of the idea was that part of the male orgasming inside the woman was what led to her having an orgasm, which would led to her getting pregnant. That 
That is weird. Well, there was, there was, I think there was I might, like a Senate. might have completely remembered <laughs> yeah, this incorrectly. I <laughs> Again, I was probably 15 at the time. Oh, well, there you go. Um, yeah. But there was, there was someone, um, I think it was like a senator or Congress. I, I live in the UK now, so I'm not as um, up to date with, with all the crazy stuff going on over here. Um, but I think there was like a senator who said this again, this idea <laughs> that a woman had to like orgasm, it, meaning undermining the idea that you couldn't be raped, raped right. unless you had an orgasm, which was a yeah. Victorian I remember belief. That. Yeah. yeah. I think that was really recently. Yeah, I think it was like in the last year. I, I hate to say it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, I really do remember. I mean, I, have I should this- just be like in the background popping up and like I could have like a <laughs> sign that says 18th century or 19th century. You know, right. like let's, where did that idea come from originally? And that's. I do have this weird, weird, vague memory that that was the way that. Ugh, God, that you know. were taught? God, I don't right. It's it's too weird. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't. It's it's too vague. You know. It's, it does sound too weird. Like I now I picture you went to like a really Victorian no, school. No, I went to a place <laughs> called Newton South, and it's a suburb of Boston. Really nice school. Mm. Nothing wrong with it. Other other than you yeah, know, I don't other remember other than your sex ed. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that was. Uh, and did they too pass weird. out the Jugend penis no, as well they didn't. after? <laughs> they did smack our hands <laughs> yeah. though. They caught us masturbating. Good, yeah. No. It, so, but why were people so obsessed with that? Why were they so self-pleasuring? I, yeah, and I think that again, you know, you look at that sort of buttoned-up Victorian mm-hmm. mentality. Didn't um, they put like dresses over the legs of pianos and chairs and stuff like that? Oh, I don't know about that. I think they did because I, because I think, it would have been provocative. Yeah, make you. I mean, think it of, might be more bullshit that I remember, <laughs> but I I really do remember Everybody something. That one, I think yeah. we fact checked this before. I just did it's it horseshit, right? Yeah, it's it's not real. Okay, but oh, it is some. Oh, okay. You know what? I remember where I heard it from. I heard it from Terrence McKenna. It was one of the things he talked about during one of his uh, his speeches. That's right. We did we did fact check that. I mean, we like to think that that the past is really different from us, which mm-hmm. it is in some ways. But you know, again, like we still share some similar fears. And the, the masturbation thing, actually, the last thing I I want to show you that I brought is this. Uh-huh. Um, so. This what is, is that? This is a urine wheel that would have date to the medieval period. Oh, my um, God. And so the, the idea was that the doctor could diagnose you according to the color of your urine. Spoiler alert, if your urine's black, you're probably in big trouble. Yeah, robbed uh, Yeah. Um, and they Can didn't just – Yeah, they didn't just um, – uh, look at the color they tasted the urine as well hilarious <laughs> so <laughs> so and and they could um diagnose diabetes because uh someone with diabetes their urine tastes sweet so they were actually diagnosing diabetes oh Christ. yeah so there you go that's the one we based it off yep oh my god but my favorite part of of the urine in the medieval period and doctors with urine they some some <laughs> practitioners would take the urine and put it into a divination uh, bowl and they could tell your future and I think they should bring that back like you know at the end of your checkup yeah. you know it, not to be covered by insurance but you know out yeah, of pocket if, if they test your urine and you're totally dehydrated and there's blood in there like yeah, yeah. bro you ain't gonna make it yeah. <laughs> you don't even have to do person. the divination bowl you don't yeah. have to do that well it's weird that image in the the the, the whole circle the the center circle like that this a guy is holding the doctor the holding the flask yes so is that the doctor Yep, that would be the doctor holding the flask, and actually, it's like a wine taster. Hmm, he like is like a wine taster. Hmm. I did a whole, um, again, a YouTube video on this, which is why I have this stupid prop. And um, we we cut through images, and that image of the doctor holding the flask was sort of the predominant image of a physician up into a certain period. Mm. Um, now it's sort of like 
the stethoscope is the uh, is the object now that we associate with doctors. Right. Um, but but the for, flask used to the be. urine flask used to be it, and that they were was called it. yeah they were called the urine prophets. flask and a doctor's pole yeah or a barber <laughs> and the, pole yeah and oh. the and the plague mask oh my god <laughs> um, but they used to call them piss prophets because they they tell your fortune <laughs> using your urine so oh my god we should I think that is something we should bring back I piss think you have prophets. the power to bring that back well you know what if there's tarot card readers why not piss go. prophets yeah at least yeah. piss prophets are basing it on something yeah. <laughs> You know? Throw your urine into that divination bowl. I know there's so many images of the doctor holding the flask, and that is and the, crazy. you know obviously like the color of your urine could be an indicator of health. It still is. Oh today. yeah, and look at the guy. He's like, what do you think, doc? <laughs> yeah, how am I doing? I know. He looks like he's hurting. very, very <laughs> worried. Gotta be yeah, some piss profits in LA. Probably. Most police. They're gonna open up a, a store right now. Look at the the bandaid around the guy's head. Yeah, like he's hurting. <laughs> the guy's got a head injury, and the doctor's checking Nothing his piss. Nothing good. Yeah. What's the next image? What's going on there? I think he's pulling. A tooth, yeah. Oh, Christ. Yeah, actually, um, the barbers, when they pulled teeth, sometimes they would have a drum in the shop, and it would get louder as they got closer to pulling the tooth, which would make me more anxious. Oh, my God. Um, and the barber shop was was a male domain, because you'd also get advice on sexual diseases, because, of course, everybody had like syphilis. Oh, right. so this is... Uh, a fake nose. So everybody sort that? of lost their noses. What? <laughs> yeah. How'd they lose their nose? Okay, so something nose. you probably don't <laughs> something you probably look. don't know about syphilis. I don't know if we have that image of um of syphilis that I, I sent. Um <laughs> poor Jamie, I told um your booking manager Matt Staggs, I said, send these images to Jamie and don't tell him any context. You know, we'd be like, <laughs> what the hell is this podcast gonna be on? Um but they lost their noses. Yeah, they the lost their noses. So syphilis um attacks sort of the soft tissue. Mm. And the image that I, I sent through, which you'll show in a minute, um the, the guy has um, holes in his scalp as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's a photograph. That is a photograph from the oh 19th my century. Oh, God. So it he ate actually, right through his head. He held onto his nose, though, so you could just cover that with a hat. Oh, I guess. <laughs> but but it was it was incredibly painful. And you uh, Al Capone had syphilis, and so you lost your mind. It attacked um, the soft oh. tissues, attacked the brain. It was really – so people today, you know, I'll show these images on my Instagram or Twitter, and people will be like, wow, I didn't know syphilis was so bad. It's like people died from it all the time. Well, and syphilis is also responsible for powdered wigs. You know that story, right? No. Oh, you From don't? Cent- no. Oh, I got oh, something for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, you got something. When it was, uh, I forget, some noble person got syphilis and started wearing a wig. Yeah. And when they started wearing wigs, other people started emulating them because they were the celebrities of the kingdom. I feel like this is a drunk history. No, this is real. <laughs> this is legitimate. And the more wealthy you were, like, because syphilis makes your hair fall out as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, yeah, your, fault, your yeah. teeth fall out. Yeah. And so the more wealthy you were, the bigger and taller your wig would be. That oh, where, is where okay. the term big wigs comes from oh that's interesting yeah. i mean i knew that in the 18th century that the wigs were getting bigger as the, like the fashions mm-hmm. in fact um uh my husband illustrated a book called the gin lane gazette and as it's sort of like an 18th century newspaper and as the newspaper um, moves on the women would have to sit at the bottom of the carriage because their wigs were so high in some cases wow. um but I wonder and, if the w- women had syphilis. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because sure. it would be passed on or 
So that's probably why they had wigs as well. Yeah, and yeah. Um, with syphilis, you, you know, your nose fell off, and it was so prevalent in the 19th oh. century that they had no nose clubs. So people no would get together. Clubs? Yeah, and they would in London they would cheer the fact that you know we, we lost our we, nose. Yeah, we lost our nose. We have syphilis. So they couldn't smell anything either. No, I mean it was awful. And Ugh. actually, one of the ways that they treated syphilis was through mercury, which is very oh, poisonous. Oh, terrific! And so when you talk about Listen, the loss no nose of, club. Writers in London. I don't know if that's the no nose well, club, but yeah, they might, have, they might have STDs. Though, so. <laughs> yeah, they just they're all just standing there with top hats and underwear. <laughs> yeah. um, pull up the thing though about big wigs, oh. so I can uh, show her. Oh, do you her. see? Do you see that one right up there? Oh, oh yeah, that's oh, that's that. mine. Um, little... If you go up, wait up, Jamie, and go. Yes. Yeah, so that man didn't lose his nose to syphilis, but that's an early um, form of uh, rhinoplasty that they, that dates back to the Renaissance. Mm. And you'd have to stay in that position for weeks while that grafted. Um, I believe this so man he, was this injured. This guy had uh, a cut of his, for people just listening, there's a slice off of his arm that's connected to his nose. And they have taped and strapped his arm to the top of his head. So he's to yeah. stay in this position while his the chunk of his arm grows into his face and then they're going to cut it and remove it when it develops its own blood supply. It's oh like, God. it's like the Nick. If people have watched that show, mm. the Nick, um, they have a scene with this. So yeah, it was, it would have been so uncomfortable. Um, you might be better off with no nose. Yeah, you might be better that. off. And mercury, of course, you would lose your teeth and it just yeah. really awful kinds of things. They well, did it just with didn't work. No. And How long had, did that last for the mercury thing? Uh, all the way into the 19th century. Jesus. And so there's a phrase. After a bunch of people died when they go, hey, eh, guys, this mercury. People are still copying, you know? What I are mean? we basing this on? Yeah. Okay. Syphilis hidden between powder wigs. Syphilis oh, epidemic in the late 1500s. Europe left people with patchy hair loss. Um, go, go to the actual, um, the, the who, who's it was, who, what, yeah. So these noblemen, they were all gross, oh, yeah. <laughs> disgusting people with yeah. STDs. What, but what is the name of the guy? Hold on. Don't scroll. Go back up. Here it. Yeah, okay, there it is. Oh, Louis the Fourteenth. Louis the Fourteenth, only seventeen, his mob started thinking worried the baldness might hurt his reputation. Louis hired forty eight wig makers to save his image. Oh. Five years later, King of So but if you scroll down Both they, men likely had syphilis. Yes. Both men likely had syphilis. So this is what started it all out. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's, they were hideous too. Like well, I mean, so, to our modern sensibilities, like that just looks so bizarre. Well, not only, yeah, I mean, everything's gross, <laughs> right? The, no one's washing themselves. Yeah, this is, they don't this know is what, what germs I mean. are. People they think syphilis. it was great. They watch a Hollywood movie, they're like, oh, it'd be so beautiful to live in the pet. No, it <sighs> would have People are such assholes <laughs> with that. that. That drives me crazy when people want to pretend. Romanticize that, yeah. that it was Look, so lovely. There and, are terrible things about life today. There absolutely yeah. are, but this is the best time to be alive <laughs> yeah. ever, by yeah. far. Yeah, people say, um, is this the best? time medically and it's like well hopefully that's always true right yeah. hopefully tomorrow is the is better than you know hopefully we're we're advancing and, and learning more and everything i mean i think that you know we shouldn't look at uh science and medicine as totally linear like that we're progressing towards something mm. um but that you know if obviously we're we're learning from what doesn't work and like that's why i said failure is a huge part of what i love to talk about on on youtube and stuff because we just don't talk about it enough in yeah. life and science and medicine and all the things that fail and um, help us get to where we are today. Well, Lindsay, thank you. Thank and you. Thank you for writing this awesome book and thank you for your amazing Twitter feed. I'm, I've been spending many, <laughs> many, many 
moments freaking the fuck out reading your stuff thank and you watching so your much. images. Uh, I'm really happy you could come down here and share all this stuff with us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, tell people how to get a hold of you on Instagram, how they can check out your feed. Okay. Um, I'm Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris on Instagram and Dr. Lindsay Fitz on, on Twitter and Under the Knife on YouTube. And the book is The Butchering Art. You can get it on Amazon. I'd really love it if you bought it. They're going to buy it. <laughs> I, I guarantee you. Joe Rogan it's said really buy good. it. It's really good. It's really good. It'll Excellent. freak you out. Excellent. Thank you so much, Thank Lindsay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, everybody.